podcast since this is probably the last podcast before st patty's day happy st patty's day pretty early though for us yeah it feels weird a little bit it's kind of like that whole christmas thing where they start celebrating a halloween give me a break give me well, this break. is only a week right well i figure the scale is is shorter because it's a it's you know it's a smaller holiday plus most people on st patty's day will be drunk so they won't know what day it is anyway oh all right that balances out i, I, so. I already started drinking but that's just me <laughs> that's a, a week of pre-gaming <laughs> um, and speaking of St. Patty's Day if you're in Brooklyn on St. Patty's Day at the way station the Wasties will be playing it's kind of their holiday um, hence with the drinking the Irish and the it's drinking. a fusion it's a fusion are you casting stereotypes right now? yep yep okay cool I have enough Irish in me to not be offended C- can I join? <laughs> and they're and they're, they're drinking music they've said they're drinking music so you know there's that also there's going to be an acapella group doing music on St. Patty's Day. Which will they be, be performing Danny Boy? Will someone I'm be sure Danny everyone Boy? will perform Danny Boy. You will be so will tired the of Danny Boy. Will be performing Danny Boy? Don't you will be so that? tired Maybe. of Danny Boy. You will be willing to pour whiskey in your ears to clean it off. And I will tell you this, getting whiskey into your inner ear cavities is a terrible, terrible burning. Well, barring all of that, that, that you just said, uh... Danny Boy is not the kind of thing that you'd really get tired because you really just hear it on St. Patty's Day. Day. That is not it's not true. the kind of thing, like, I don't think you're going to find that in the radio, like the way Christmas music is worn on you in the oh, radio. Oh, yeah, definitely it's not. It's St. Patrick's Day music. Well, yeah, but it's hey, not well, yet well, that kind of... Well, let's just point one big thing out. Nobody listens to the radio anymore. That's actually not true. XM doesn't count. XM's like cable. Not us and our friends outside of our circles. Plenty of people do. Older generations still do. Which is really weird because there's no there's there's one album not one album one station in New York for older generations. That's it. And what that's is Q he on right now? I have no what idea. I'm he... complaining about the state of music on our radio. We've been through that already. I know, but I'm bringing it back up. But I'm... I just mentioned Danny Boy. What an innocent, I don't know. It's such an innocent song. <laughs> Segway. Moving on. <laughs> is that a segue? So at all? yes, on on Monday the seventeenth, if you are free, come see the Wasties. I will be there at the way station. Steve might. John probably won't. Alcohol poisoning. Uh, no, it's Monday. Yeah, I've off. Oh, so you'll be there. I'll drink. You'll come to a Wasties show finally. Sunday. Make up your damn mind. Monday. 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 Almost definitely. Yeah. Um. And, uh, oh, also, since this is going up after the article went up, finally put up an article. I talked to we, uh, about a month ago about a awesome nerdcore hip-hop show I went to. Wrote an article about it. Went up on Monday. So definitely go check it out. Um, it features Tribe One, Lewis Logic, Michael Kills, Schaefer the Dark Lord, and Adam Warrock, as well as special guests. And I wrote up a whole thing about it. It was uh, a great show, so definitely go give that a read. Oh, that concert you went to a month ago, right? Yeah, yes. it took me a month yes. to write about it. I get it. It's fine. I finally <laughs> well, finished it at least. I had rub it in a bit. Considering the content of what he just presented to us, there was a lot there. Yeah, there were a lot of acts. <laughs> and plus, at least I wrote an article. Hey, look at that. Hey, zing. Zing. Anyway, why don't we get into this week's uh, album. John, it's John's pick and his fault so you might as well start us off it's i'm so happy it's my fault matt interprets it as a fault 
So this week we did Les Claypool's Duel de Twang. That's the out. That's the band. Not duel, duo. 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 I, said, I thought I said duo. Okay. Okay. And <laughs> the album is the Four Foot Shack. That which is, we should actually mention album art because we never mention album art. It's which we it is an incredibly literal. Which we should album mention art. more. Actually, we really, really should. Yeah. It's the one thing we we're, we kind of neglect. Although they see it when we post it on the website. Yeah. If they check there. Anyway, but, but it, it'll sound weird if we were like, you know, I saw this picture, man. So the you album, should see this thing. It's so right the, there. So the album artwork is a shack with four feet. So it's a literal uh, animation of the title, um, and the first track is of the same name, actually. So, but the reason for choosing that thing, Les, it's right there <laughs> for choosing Les Claypool is, well, the two gentlemen sitting next to me rave. Les Claypool. Rave we rave, Primus. We rave Primus. Primus. Because Primus was... Primus is a band. They go back to something like 89, 90, at least the late 80s. And yeah. they were they were pretty heavy in the around. whole new metal scene. Because yeah. they came up with the style that no one could really pin down. It seemed to borrow from a little bit of southern rock. But it was still kind of current with the whole industrial phase. And I say that very, very lightly. Just because they had a bit of a heavier edge to them. It was mainly driven by Les Claypool himself and his very unique bass-playing style. Lead, lead bass-playing bass style, style, which was unheard of at the time, at least in many circles. Yeah. And the reason I chose this album was to bring something to the table that I thought I would like because the two of them love the artist. Well, we thought it would be something you would like. Yeah. yeah. And I have absolutely no experience with uh, uh, anything that... Mr. At all. Claypool ever has ever. done has Mr. Claypool has the done universe. at all I, I don't know anything about him I know nothing about his music his, his leanings or anything like that so it was more of an experiment for me than anything else I wanted to do something different well now you know a little about him apart from that I mean just general mainstream culture has come to know him by the little spots that he's written for instance the South Park intro theme the uh, robot Bro chicken intro, intro theme. theme. I mean, he also, all these little things. He also actually, fun fact about Les Claypool, when um, Metallica's bassist died, he tried out for Metallica. I did not know that. Yeah, he That's tried out. Interesting. He tried out for Metallica and they turned him away. And when was James he too, was he they, too bass for Metallica? Well, actually, actually, yes. What what it was was. But see, I get that. I really I learned, do. I learned this from behind the music when that was still a thing on VH1. They're interviewing James Hetfield about it, and um, he actually mentions. You know, Les Claypool tried out, and you, it was clear he was on another level. He was not for us, but that wasn't because he was bad. He just had no place with us. Well, that's actually, I mean, they they chose the exact right reason yeah. to dismiss him. Yeah. <laughs> but how awesome could Metallica have been? See, I don't even want to think wouldn't. about that. I'm it not even going to go down that. They wouldn't be awesome, Because though. they wouldn't have been Metallica, necessarily. No, they would have It would have been an odd His style wouldn't fit them at all. Yeah. I guess it is worth guessing, perhaps, but you know what? History is history, and we got what we got. And it gave Les Claypool a chance to pursue an independent career, because obviously if he got his name attached to a bigger name than him, uh, it would have been more like following the greats around, so to speak. But, of course, this way, he was able to just lead it himself. Yeah. Now he is the great with which other people want to be associated to, because after the whole Primus phase, once Primus kind of went down and then they came back again they went down well in between those times there were all these little groups that wanted to join up uh with les claypool which is why he had a pretty hefty solo career and this album here is within that solo career it was actually described by claypool himself as my f off vacation band 
Um, another quote here is, I'm getting a chance to bullshit with the audience. Two guys that just have to hold down the rhythm, so you can't get terribly specific with melody, except with vocals and whatnot. And uh, the vocalist that he works with is a friend from high school. Uh, excuse me, no, a guitarist that he works with is a friend from high school who apparently, at least based on this album, specializes in bottleneck guitar, which I find pretty cool. It does have a more interesting and distinct twang from what you would find in a lot of mainstream guitar work. It does have a... a, a, a it's not even the candidates of timbre or anything like that. It just feels different. The texture of the music it makes is enough of a distinction that you can really hear... It's like a cello versus a violin. Well, they can hit the same registers, but they also have different jobs and different presentations to them. Well, I think and it's, it's more about... It's really... It's, it's unique in that. It's, it's more about, I think, the time frame that it puts you in. It's that bottleneck guitar is, is the style of the kind of stuff you'd hear back in the 30s with, like, Robert Johnson-era stuff. And mm. it's essentially that, but maybe a little more advanced. A little bit modernized and fused with uh, these really, really funky riffs and everything. But it's still well, that same old style, which is why another quote that was played, put here for it was hillbilly music. Or well, I that, would say even Cajun-style music or something. Well, yeah. I mean, well, Les Claypool, when he's with Primus, there's a lot more layers and mixing and production. Not that there isn't production here, but there's just another level when he's with Primus. Here, he, definitely solo work like this is not really featured. It, it's featured in moments in Primus, but not at a forefront like it is here. Usually the bass is at the forefront in 90% of Primus's track, whereas here, there are actually a lot of moments where he takes a step back and lets the guitarist lead. Well, that was actually kind of interesting, although just to speak with what you uh, said before, the other uh, variety of Les Claypool's, Les Claypool's solo work, that's the kind of stuff that actually causes quite a bit of a divide in the whole Primus-loving community, because... They say, oh, well, we want Primus back. Primus was the best thing that Les Claypool ever did. That's what we love you for. Because there was that cross-checking between his ideas. Of course, he is the number one idea guy. He's sort of the brains. But there was still that, you know, that checks and balances system that always exists with the band. Where you would get other ideas coming from other artists. But then all of a sudden when you have the Les Claypool solo career, it's just him, 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 and him. But... I don't know, there's still a lot of intriguing stuff that comes out about that. Either way, this was a little bit different, I think, from that, because of the fact that he does take a step back, and because he's associated with a really, really good guitarist. And that's what really gave it, I think, a unique sound, even with contrast to his other solo work. Even though here, we actually get a lot of covers from his solo work. And it's essentially mostly a cover album, aside from just a couple things. This is either tracks drawn from Primus, or drawn from... His, his other solo album. Actually, as far as I or can tell. Or from other artists entirely. Actually, as far as I can tell, they're all covers. They're except were... except for the Four Foot Shack, track right. one. We're pretty sure that that is uh, an original for this. And speaking yeah. to it's the... It's a 42-second intro. Well, speaking to the, the hillbilliness, I, I thought I was listening to like a really bad knockoff of Howdy Doody. But like in the most fun way. Nice twang. I mean... Nice finger work. Nice bass work. Just a nice little... It's a forty-two. It's a forty-two-second mm. intro. That's all it is. In this, it's the most not cliche of intros, as in sound, but definitely in structure. It's just it's to introduce you to the record. That's its only purpose. It's got a little bit of lyrics. It's you know it's <clears throat> cute. It's engaging. Yeah, I'm with John. I get the curtain riser aspect. No, well, yeah, and that's you know well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and especially with the it's hillbilly a skit. thing. It, kind yeah, kind yeah. of. 
Um, but, you know, that's that hillbilly stylization, almost like you're at a very, very small little theater in a one-horse town, you know? Big for them, maybe not on a grand scale, but it's clear that this is some kind of... I am not going to say the word minimalist, but it's a little more pared down for him. It's pared down for him, but you can't say minimalist with this. I, Ab- I just not. completely would disagree with that. Either well, way, though, it's it's clear that as of the second track, uh, Winona's Big Brown Beaver, which is a straight-up cover from Primus, Primus? I believe, uh, Seas of Cheese. Winona's Brown Album. Winona's Brown Album. I thought it was Sailing Seas of Cheese. Sailing Seas of Cheese is Jerry's Race Car Driver, Tommy the Cat, and something else. A DMV. This will be apparent later. But you could be right. I'm pretty sure that the, it's from the Brown album. <clears throat> uh, anyway, that's not really that important. We're not, we're not here to have, watch two Primus fans debate. <laughs> what is important is that this is a much more raw and funkier version of the original, and I think it actually is an improvement on the original. And as much as the original is one of my favorite tracks, the stripped-down nature of it gives it a kind of flow that supports the storytelling feel that the song has already had, but in a bigger way. It's a, it's, it's a really playful song. And this really comes through uh, most dramatically in what I mentioned before, the fingering. The finger work of the guitarist is really, really definitely above your, your standard level. Uh, he rises, he falls. He's got speed where you don't really expect too much speed. Um, he's got draw where you don't expect too much draw, and uh, one of the, the my favorite aspects is his bends, his ability to manipulate notes at the at the right time to really get across uh, a, a nice fun emotion while still playing against the very steady uh, bass work. It was just a, a great great uh, duel. Well, see those bends you're talking about. That is the bottleneck style playing. That is. Hands easily borrowed straight from uh, the Robert Johnson era performances in like the 30s. Um, I feel like I'm right there back in the time when I listen to that style here. It's it's not like he does that throughout, but for a good portion of it, like 75% of this album, he's he's in that style, and it's pretty damn cool. I wouldn't have originally thought that would fit, you know, a song like when it is known as Big Brown Beaver, but then again, it 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 worked. I agree with you, Matt, completely. It 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 fit the storytelling uh, aspect. But, yeah, I think it was really the beat that kind of drew me in more than anything. It had more of a steady heartbeat-like uh, tempo than the original did. And I do think it, it's, it's, it's worth it to compare, especially that we ended up having another cover album. You do have to compare at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, the thing about this is from out of the gate, I mean, Four Foot Shack was a little slower, but, but we had this big round beaver, Les Claypool says from the very beginning, oh, you want a beat? Here's a beat, and I'm going to do it as fast or slow as I want. Oh, finger picking, I can do that too. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's just what he's known for, and he just, it's more of that. Um, and of course, because you have a, a duet, you're not going to have like, you know, a full drum set or anything. The beat is essentially, it's, it's either it's either them right there against the uh chassis the body of the guitar itself yeah. or it's a mini tambourine that's another thing they have within them so sometimes when you just got it could be attached to their foot who knows i've never seen the band play in live but it's whatever they can I manage imagine as a it duet. is when 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 yeah. painless parker has used a mini tambourine it's usually on his on his ankle or on his foot yeah um and it's, so when you tap your foot you make the sound but it's just like you said you got two dot guys that have to hold down the rhythm so you know and they do it well for something that didn't have any drums the rhythm is still very apparent and very easy to follow and that's I think uh, speaks to their layering. Um, I I I enjoy the way he the 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 duos are are putting their voices together. I enjoy the way they actually layer 
uh, the vocals on top of uh, the other instruments, the guitar work, to really peak them, to bring them out, especially that that later yee he 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 part. I don't know how else to explain well, it because I can't reproduce. See, it. Anyone who does, anyone who knows the song knows that very very well, and that that the itself y- almost is almost yodeling. identical. Yeah, but, it is kind of like a yodel. I never thought of that. Yeah, and it's just the way it it twangs. I, that's a word I'm going to be using a lot. The way it it twangs, it grates a little. I just love the way everything is just being placed. Well, they're, see, they're making a great sandwich here. There's points like that that I can almost withhold because at least in that particular aspect, it's it's no different from the original. Yeah. That 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 he holds. That's a, that's a signature. That's a signature of of the song. Yeah. And it, it it worked then and it works today in order to give you that sort of deep south, almost Everglades type atmosphere. Which they get back to in a lot of other songs on the record as well. Actually, it yeah. gets back to in the next track, uh, Amos Moses. Right. Which this so Amos Moses was actually a cover as well, right, Steve? Uh, yeah, that was a cover of a Jerry Reed track originally, which goes way back. But then again, Primus also covered that, so it's like a three-time cover track. Right. This was, as I put it, a Bayou Tall Tale. It was real Louisiana, Mississippi style. It, it had the three F's: funky, fast, and fun. This song. <laughs> you make uh, that up now? <laughs> actually, no. I made it up about an hour ago when we listened to the album. Oh, um, that's that's labor. Wrote it down significantly. <laughs> um, the track is very engaging. It kind of it, it, it keeps the vibe going from Rihanna's Big Brown Beaver. It's another storytelling track. Um, this one's about them gators. Uh, yeah, he's he uh, only needs one hand to capture the gators because the other one got bit off. So you might as only well use one hand. Uh, it's very, it's it's playful. I'm I'm seeing some theme work actually building with these types of stories that they're building and that they're that they're doing here. Folkish tales, uh, going back to the to what we've discussed before, that kind of vaudevillian style, um, like Rex Marksley was a very, not necessarily tall tales. Just here is an everyday man who's also happens to have some sort of heroic nature to him uh that said this was a little bit lesser on the musical side for me outside of of a late solo outside the late solo this one didn't really capture me didn't enrapture me the way winona's did enrapture huh well enrap enrap Okay, because sure. you're making I, I, words. I love. I mean, I, I love the song, but I, I, I admit it did not quite, quite cause the rapture. Either way, there was some crispness here. I think that it was even more fine than what we get back in uh, Winona's Big Brown Beaver. Uh, apart from that, the groove, which was great then, I thought was even expanding here. I thought they were bringing the funk more to fruition, yeah. which again, based on on uh, the song choice here, which is a song that goes back quite a ways. I thought including the funk was kind of an interesting choice. Also, you get a little bit more attitude in the vocals. Uh, he even sings a little bit in this track, whereas he was very sort of steady back in uh, Winona's Big Brown Beavers. Steadier, perhaps, in that track than he was in the original version. Um, he sort of has this... He has this tendency to almost speak as if he's ad-libbing. Yeah. Of course, it's written, and of course, it's it falls... But it, he doesn't always have to fall right on the beat. Yeah. It's just that this sort of freestyling nature. Well, to yeah, his it was very storytelling. I mean, right. he does that in Tommy the Cat. He does it in... Um, he does it in a bunch of songs, actually. Jerry was race car drivers. A lot of storytelling in the verses as well. Right, but he had pulled that back for yeah. this album's version of Winona's Big Brown Beaver, and then here in Amos Moses, he's sort of singing again. Yeah. Oh, in, in, in a, 
a very unique style way. It's not, you know, that's that's for Les Claypool here, but... Yeah, discussing the, the vocals for a second, since we're talking Les Claypool, who is a singer and sings on all of the Primus records as well, something to say right out of the gate is to say whether he's a good or bad singer oh, yeah, varies not... on your taste. He is not... He is not um, do I want to say harmonic? Melodic? I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of the words to describe. He's, he's not no, technically you're... a good singer. Like technically, if you were going to math it out, I guess I guess you might be able to say. I mean, that. the thing. The, so the thing about. Oh, get out of here! The, I see. I enjoy it. I I think see, it's. I think oftentimes, his range is very impressive. He yeah. can go very low and also very high. But he has. The, it's it's because he has such a speaking style. I think yeah. there's a word for this in opera. Whenever they kind of pull back and they're not exactly singing arias, but they sort of semi-sing the dialogue in between. Is it a word for that that just escapes me at the it moment? Becomes, it becomes but, more of a poetic verse recital as opposed to just singing. And I of, wasn't trying to of. insult Les Claypool singing. Remember, I'm a fan. Me I'm just too. saying, traditionally, traditional singing and Les Claypool do not meet often. He is very not traditional. No, I get that, which is, and uh, which why, is what I felt the need, and that's Actually, why I felt the need to explain he sings in his own way. And but we'll, even that itself was a little more melodic here yes. than he usually is, and yeah. that, that, that piqued my interest. Actually, I, I will refute that last statement, uh, Matt, is traditionally a presentation of poetry. I mean, if you're talking folk music, that's how it was presented so that everybody could do it, so that in a story setting, you can just say it. I was speaking traditionally compared to modern singing. Okay. But in a traditional sense, it actually really does harken back to the truest old school Americana. It, it's, it's very much, well, there there's, doesn't have the harmonies that you would expect in something like an old school bluegrass or old school Appalachian. It's still very much the everyday man kind of a singing. Yeah, yeah, from the kind of American that you got back in the day would, of course, not be sung by anyone who had any proper vocal training. Right. It would be people that have just been playing in jug bands for, you know, a while, and they just thought they'd try their hand. Or they're just, they're try workers. They, they sing to keep beats and tempos while they work. Or something to that effect. Variety of reasons to sing, just not just to sing. Yeah, but, uh, and you know, I guess it's appropriate for a song like this, because... I think you were the one, John, who actually called this a Bayou Tall Tale. Yeah. Which yeah. is the, actually, funny, I said Everglades before. I guess we're really more in the Bayou here. There's a real thick Cajun touch that I think uh, is peppered throughout most of this work that, that sort of gives it a brand of Americana. I can't quite say it so broadly. There's, there's region sort of being spoken in these music in this music. but um, And also from the lyrics here. Uh, southeast of Tippadow, Louisiana. There you are. You're in the Bayou. You didn't really, you know, he flat out told you. <laughs> Again, I actually personally have not heard the original uh, Amos Moses by Jerry Reed, but um, just based on this kind of thing, it's it it fits the the groove here. Everything just flows together. I feel like I'm in a place. I'm in a time. And we kind of get out of that time in Red State Girl. It first thing it does right off the bat is introduce a very dangerous vibe to this album. A I kind of equated it to a. 70s or 80s kind of a vice idea vice city or miami vice or that sort of thing there is uh, another level to it and that that's the infusion of more modern styles in this older americana but it still remains very much a product of the south that combination with the very 
it's not quite storytelling anymore. It's more just tongue-in-cheek, almost a joke. Really made this a, ver- a, a, a unique track for me on this album. Ah, it was the music itself that made this a very unique track for me. And it goes into just the tonal shifts itself that really do kind of step away from the kind of stuff you'd hear out of, you know, everything I've been saying, 30s Americana, 30s um, uh, guitar stylings. It's mainly driven by a single riff that the bass repeats nearly every measure. But... It's really, really cool how he experiments here because you can hear him just shifting around certain tones, these little neighboring tones where he hikes up to the flat two in the beginning of the riffs. But then after that, you sort of start solidifying the whole thing is in such an odd, uh, has an odd resonance to it. I almost want to say it's in Locrian mode. I'm not positive about that, but it's it's easily the weirdest of all modes. And like at the end of these riffs, for one, for instance, the bass will resolve from the flat five to the one instead of the five to the one, which is usually what you get. So, and even then, there's still a five thrown in there, so it's really, really odd. But just that resolution from the flat five to the one gives us such an odd resonance, and that occurs every single measure. That's what gives. That's what makes it so um, twangy, which well fits the album title, Duo de Twang. That seems to be their goal here, and you get a lot of twang in the bottleneck guitar, which is is all over the place here um even though it's used a little bit more as color i think well yeah i mean i'll agree with steve that i it, it, the music is really what ha- kept me interested at all in this song the lyrics i didn't really it's not that they were bad or good i just didn't care i just wasn't really interested in what he had to say how he sang was okay but i the, kind of agree the music really pulled me into the song but overall compared to the last two songs it just felt a little duller it wasn't it wasn't a dull song on the, the macro scale, but on a micro scale, it just compared to the other two songs. It just I don't know. I want I I wanted to go in some other direction. However, though, again, the fact. But that said, the fact that it was on the shorter side compared to the other two songs made the song not be a killer for me completely. I didn't. It didn't pull me out completely. It was just I felt not as good as the previous two tracks because I'm not counting the intro. The intro was what it was. Um, I no, I'm gonna refute. I really did like the imagery in the lyrical work. Um, she got tits made out of recycled <laughs> bottles. Her hair flipped up in a twirl. She wants to grow up to be Sarah Palin. She's a self-proclaimed bona fide red state girl. Bona fide down there they say bona fide. <laughs> and it's, I'd love to see. No, I agree. I agree imagery, on the lyrical. When you read it, I really do agree on the lyrical. It's the imagery front. is just so red, so deep south, and it's it's not campy in that way. It's not you know deep deep south like like you can't even go any far south. <laughs> whether he's just saying y'all and you know really being derogatory. It, it these are words that I've met southern people so down by the Manson Dixon line and further that it, Mason, 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 uh, Mason Dixon me. yes the words Charles Manson Dixon line <laughs> but see but bona fide that's a word that you don't hear in the upper the northern east coast no it's true that's definitely it's, something it's just something and it's little things like that that really that's does that's like right, right there at see, a streetcar named Desire I'll give you credit that reading it it does sound good but the way they were sung, it just didn't. Really no, I'm going to pull this me. back. I'm, I mean, I do agree with John on this point, to be honest. But but I, it was the music that I think really separates it. Yeah. You you Matt, you feel it feel uh, it feels a little repetitive, and 
I I agree. It does feel repetitive. But it's so happy. To, to, yeah, I was happy it did. I'm so because happy Because otherwise, there. it would not be that 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 really cool uh, tone shifts that I, that I just discussed earlier. That would not have had the same effect. It wouldn't have sounded so eerie, so odd, if that didn't repeat over and over again. That's and what it, makes it so hypnotic. It did do uh, something with the ending and it really made a furious crescendo That's the at other the thing end I was getting that to. I was just so happy to be led to with the music. I I just thoroughly enjoyed that that really just revamping and revamping of the energy towards the end. Yeah, that there's a breakdown there where sort of everything sort of comes to a halt or it builds up the the slap bass starts sort of going down in the downward direction and the, the guitar is sliding upward and then all of a sudden it just breaks as if the song is about to stop. But then it doesn't. You get, literally, bow bit bow bow <laughs> And then they go into the next, the true breakdown, where the tambourine starts joining in. And everything starts getting a little bit more intense. And this is where you actually get the guitar solo. The guitar stops being color at this point and takes on a really, really cool uh, solo. Which it probably at this point does harken from a more uh, southerly 30s um, era style. But it's just, it's so intense at this point that it, it enhances the hypnotic factor. So by the time you get to the very end, which is essentially the same the same conclusion as we got before, before the break, slap bass starts going downward, guitar starts going up, and that's the real end. But it's so much more intense at that point than it was the previous time. That's just, that's stage performance right there. And I love that kind of stuff, even on an album scale. Well, yeah, that's definitely what kept the song from being a loss for me, is that, 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 the second half of the song I enjoyed so much more than the first half because it went in that direction it, it became more interesting even with the bizarre lyrics which of course Les Claypool is known for being That's the thing. silly it, and bizarre like, as, I like the lyrics because they're bizarre it really doesn't matter what he's singing about at this point but I do like the fact that he throws in imagery that makes you feel like you're in that era or that place the setting itself regardless of whether you really care or not you get the impression even if you just catch a word or two because you're too busy focused on the music and i did like the uh i guess you might even consider it a callback of in verse two taking a lot of those lyrics and talking about the male in this uh female male verse one verse two where instead of she wants to grow up to be sarah palin it's he's got naked pictures of sarah palin (laughs) <laughs> and she's a self-proclaimed bona fide red state girl. He's looking for one. No, yeah, exactly. And it's it's that uh, tit for tat, not tete tete, but no, tit no, for tat. No, no, no pun intended. Yeah, I got you. Uh, that I really, I it just feels homey that way. It feels very familiar, and it's just easily identifiable. That I can, I can both enjoy and gloss over the lyrics at the same time to get to the instruments. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's. It, at its core, the good old boys kind of atmosphere. And then we get the bridge came tumbling uh, tumbling down. And this is where I feel like we get a, our first real dip in the album. So the, <coughs> excuse me. So this song is very much, I described it as a morbid nursery rhyme. It's repetitive bass line, which, I mean, we've seen come and go in other songs, so not really the main problem. My biggest problem with this was the lyrics were simple and kind of repetitive. But but it seems to convey that kind of creepy nursery rhyme feel, which I imagine is what they were going for. It's um, actually a cover as well. The original version, which we listened to a little bit, had a much more country, down-home sound, whereas this clearly departed from that a bit but explains the repetitive lyrics but see here's the thing i kind of i mean 
I kind of disagree with John on this point. I rather liked this tune, if, if maybe not from a Primus perspective or a less Claypool perspective, I just kind of like what he did with it, because it's, it does tell a story, and maybe you're not as into the story, but I'm kind of into, into the story here. It was based on something real. So, uh, just quickly, apparently it was based on a real bridge that was built in in Vancouver, so we're going toward Canada here. And June of 1958, 19 men were drowned in the river. Pretty sad. And I almost got the same effect here where I was actually drawn into the story with the same, uh, with the same weight that you and Sour were, not just uh, two episodes ago with Steve Martin and Edie Brickell's album, where there were several stories there where you hear about this harrowing tale. And it's just, it's a very, very similar logic for me. And even though I wasn't as much into that, I was drawn into this because it has almost a uh, almost a sea shanty kind of riff to it. Now I'm not going to say this is anything really complex. I, honestly, the the music is a little more upbeat to sort of contrast how how sad and depressing the story is. But yet it's told in a way that is you're telling your children or or you're sitting around the campfire and everything. It's it's homey again. Right there, that's the word I was waiting for you to use. Campfire. This is a campfire tale. That's one of the few things I wrote down uh, to describe this. Be- I figured it's like the same vein as Sea Shanty. <laughs> no, no, there's a there's a difference there. Yeah, a little, but you know, again, this, that depends this has on which. This more of which a explaining group you're to in. someone. This is more like they're trying to explain a, a a sad story to somebody else, and it's done in such a way to make it some not as trite as the bear went over the mountain, but in that <laughs> same sort of vein, something you could just wax eloquence on by just repeating things over and over again and adding little verse changes here and there. That does detract from the lyrics but the problem the real problem is that overbearing beat for me i really did not like how forefront that bass was because it just was too heavy i can understand that a little bit but just to describe the beat it's almost like an oompa kind of thing the thing that you'd expect a tuba to be doing if this were like some kind of polka but instead here the bass takes it over because that's what you got to deal with um I don't like Oompa. All right, fair enough. You don't have I to don't like Oompa. I don't really like the Oompa either. I'm, I'm with John on this to one. To me, it was it was not as heavy in this as so many other things. And again, I was more drawn into the story here than I was perhaps the and music. I, but I, in my look, this is in my opinion, this is where you can really, really get away with really simple chord progressions, because you have a unique style to support it. Uh, I mean, this track is basically as simple as they come. You just have a one, four, five chord progression. That that's as common as it gets. But there are little shifts here in this sea shanty or camp campfire tale, as however you want to see it, little shifts that actually make it unique and kind of separate it from the pack. So that as far as campfire songs go, this is kind of a forerunner for me. Um, maybe it won't catch on, but whatever. It's really good for this album. So you have the little shift that I'm talking about. You have like five measures, for instance, of that first one chord instead of like your typical four so it's not so predictable where you get that you get that one extra measure to kind of throw you off and then you get only a single measure of the four chord and then only a single measure of going back to the one chord and then one measure of the five chord and then only half a measure just two beats instead of the full four beats of the four chord before going back to the the intermediate uh non-verse between verses of the one it's just a cool little variation and that in itself was enough to actually pull me into this track it's the kind of thing that a lot of artists just kind of forget to do that if you're going to choose a simple framework spice it up a bit but in my opinion this had a little bit of spice to enough uh, enough that i could accept it 
on this album next to the really advanced stuff that he's doing otherwise and just enough that i could accept it purely period even within the vein of sea shanties okay i mean i guess for me it's just i couldn't get past the lyrics enough to notice the intricacies in the beat so the beat ended up standing sounding very repetitive when paired with the repetitive lyrics whether it was or not and i get what you're saying and you were able to find something in it that really did engage you it just wasn't there for me um, and that's but that said also the guitar work stands out above the rest guitar work as stands always. out there's always a solo here yeah. and the solo is just drop dead awesome yeah. I, I actually by this song I was already stopping writing great solo yeah because it's pretty much because I, there, I look, there are some well this is a good solo there are other places on this album where we even get great solos and I, I will be uh, talking about those in detail and here it was song, just good because you know one song was, that actually does get a great solo is Boonville Stomp, and this one had a beautiful chaos over one of the steadier bass lines that did a... I just love the duality that the two instruments are, pro- are producing in this one. Well, first we should mention this is also a... Um, this is a cover of his own work, in this case, uh, from another one of his solo albums called Of Fungi and Foe. And this is a purely Les Claypool solo record and there's no Les Claypool and blah 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 this is just a Les Claypool record um and yes this song features I mean this song was was definitely for me way more engaging than the last track um it starts off with a really nice bass line that's really engaging and and a breakout from the get the thing about that bass line the reason I also found it very very engaging is because it's got it's this great use of tone sort of in concert with rhythm the rhythm is sort of circular it makes it seem like what it makes that that one tone seem like one giant tone that doesn't really repeat which at all is just a d sort of over and over and over and over and over again but there's these little leading scale tones here and there that almost hint that it's just hammering home the tonic of d minor and over that you got color guitar you've got these little metallic effects thrown in overhead that make it kind of creepy a little bit uh, in addition to that, you also have these creepy vocals that step in with this really heavy reverb, but yet not so mixed loudly that it takes, you know, center stage. It's just there in the background as part of an intro. And you'd think that creepiness would also solidify the whole minor thing, but it doesn't. Because then there's a section right after that where it shifts tone completely, where uh, it starts sort of playing in what you'd expect to be G major if the D had never left. But because the D is still there the D effectively becomes a pedal, which is just a, a, an undertone for the G major overhead, which essentially makes the whole thing D Dorian. That's the kind of stuff I just love, you know, sort of fooling the audience just a little bit. Um, and well, it yeah. made it a great intro. Well, yeah, and then that intro, I mean, that, that great bass line, when it leads into the bass singing that the other singer whose name is escaping me, who isn't Les Claypool, is doing with Les on this track really adds a vibration and a dissonance that's fantastic. It just, it, it really adds to that kind of eerie factor without being completely creepy. But really, and the lyrics, I thought, from the moment they started singing on this record were very engaging. I really like the lyrics in the song. Even, even with the repetitive chorus, the way they repeat it and how they sing it, singing it, is very enjoyable and very it, engaging. I, I likened it to conceptually get back, because it's it's um the snapshots of normalcy, 
that you kind of get for these American heroes or heroes or everyday man heroes that I was talking about earlier. It's uh, talking about him and her and she and it and all these little events that happen in lives and how they're kind of being solidified and the way it's playing off of this really steady current yet the chaos around it just does just does something different for me listening to it i can take these very plain lyrics very straightforward lyrics and they become uh fantastic they become fantastical fantastic uh, what's the word i'm looking for Fantastical. Fantastical. Fantastical works. Okay. <laughs> they become fantastical. And that's something that it, it's turning normalcy into the exotic. And I just, it's it's an incredible, incredible thing. And the great thing that's about... That's an interesting observation, that's for sure. And, and also the great thing about this song is that they don't let it get repetitive because it's about the halfway mark. They crank it up to speed 3,000. Yeah, they totally change okay, up the speed. Okay, see, that's the thing. That was the only thing that, like, right there in the middle of the track, I was almost on board with, almost, maybe you could have used a little bit more something. It yeah. was getting a little bit repetitive because there was still all D there. It wasn't as, you know, now we have been told that it's D-Dorian since early on, and it's kind of just been there. We do get a lot of color throw, thrown in, and that is something to note. It's going to count very heavy, is the way... Um, when the bottleneck guitar does sort of step into the background, it 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 comes in here and there. Again, it complements very sparsely. It's it's it tasteful. peppers the track. Yeah, but then after all is said and done, there's just a break. They have a lot of moments in here where they just completely break and it's 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 silence for a second. And then after that, it yields a faster section where the whole thing just starts going. You know, turbo Not so. speed. Not yeah, so. exactly. And then. Yeah, there's that solo that comes back again, and, and this solo really was outstanding. This is like, definitely a one of the off. best on the album. Yeah, as I called it, it was the speed bridge, speed bridge to Awesome Town, because essentially this fast, upbeat bridge takes us right into this great, great, great guitar solo, um, where you really get to hear this guitar but, shine. But wait a second, the, the bridge just fell down. We were told that in the last track. <laughs> they rebuilt it. They rebuilt it. That's what Matt thinks. Um. But also with this track, what I really like about it is they do something that's really trademark Primus. That silence break, Primus has done tons of times. It's in Jerry's the Race Car Driver. Oh, yeah, that's They've true. Done that's, it not, that's not tons new, but it's a, it's a great use. Oh, it's a, cause, it really works for Primus, and, and when they, they do it to go, hey, uh, you know, chuckleheads, pay attention. Here comes the good part. Or take a breath. Yeah, or And that. now hold that breath. Yeah. And, for 45 and, seconds of awesome and this this solo was completely worthy of that yeah it, it, <laughs> it was, was a worthy great, of the great solo. solo it had highs and lows it, it was it was it really showcased the talent of this guitarist it was a great track altogether because it really progresses at this point it does. I mean even though there was that little moment in the middle of the track where I was like wondering where it was going once the, the break is sort of the defining moment of this track yes. after that you have the solo and then it comes back to the verse with such intensity more than it had the first time the vocal themselves have more intensity it was just wonderful um i think this honestly even though it may offer a little bit less on a chordal basis because the whole song essentially is just in one chord it offers much more in the long form front yeah, to back absolutely i agree and um speaking of offering more we get more than we ever planned for with track seven so track seven is called staying alive obviously a cover of the bg's hit staying alive um this song, this is why I like when Primus covers. 
when Primus covers like this and they take something popular and well-known and they go, hey guys, that thing you love, yeah, we're throwing it out the window. Here's what we're doing. We took the skeleton, but we're going to pepper some meat on that's just us. Well, see, here's the thing. They actually brought back the Oompa riff, though, in this thing. It's yes. actually very, very similar to earlier on. I mean, whether that works for you better or worse, for me, it works a bit the same, because I was okay with it originally, and I was okay with it here. In I... this case, it, the application is just so different, though. Yes. You take going from a sea shanty to a former disco track. It's ridiculous. And yeah, they, they change it up in the weirdest of ways. Sometimes it's like straight on, you know, with the lyrics. Exactly, well, almost with the same meter as the yeah. original li- lyrics were. And yet, of course, it's got less Claypool's twang, which is unique, and honestly, the attitude there sort of fits. Almost even a little bit, like, even, well, even the same, less, or if maybe better than the original. Les Claypool is a very cocky musician. There's no denying that. He is and a the, cocky, cocky musician, and that comes through in the way he sings in this absolutely. The lyrics were meant for attitude. Yeah. And I think he actually does better attitude. That's that's the biggest thing. I, yeah. Bee Gees, great, but his uh, deeper vo- vocals... Definitely speak to the lyrics. I think a little bit better. Yeah. I love, well, case. yeah, I love the I love the Bee Gees, but yeah, that's the big joke about well, them is that here's these these, these high pitched falsetto guys. Yeah. who always sing in falsetto, and yet they're depicted to be these macho guys with hair coming right, out of their chest. Right, but this is this is irrelevant mostly. Because, no, of course, but because it's, no, it's an interesting to know because I have a feeling that could be why he chose this no, song. No, yes, yes. I'm not Maybe saying, not, but you know. I, I'm not saying it's completely irrelevant, but what I'm saying is comparing the two tracks is almost irrelevant. If you because see they are the, so but different. But if you see the comedy in the original, yeah. then you can kind of see the comedy here True. in the same in the it, same right. It's a caricature, and it's a serious caricature. This uh, is... But no, I, see, I'm not going to say... No. I think it's still a joke. No it matter which way you work it, it's still a joke. Because just even in some of the lyrics here, the way he, what he does choose to replace... Like, for instance, that the ah-ah-ahs with the hem-hem-hems. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Why it's, would you choose to do that except to uh, and this, cater to the audience? And this cover is where it really feels like a Primus song, too, almost. Because it's just so goofy, and the, the way he throws in those goofy sounds and lyrics, it really feels like a Les Claypool Primus track. Yeah, at the same time, he's also throwing in maybe the best... Uh, finger work on the guitar uh, in the entire guitar repertoire of this album it is it's he's got magic in coming out of his fingertips I love what he does to that original beat and and it's reimagining it's I, I don't even know how to explain it it's just really really beautiful that's all I can really say he well, takes I, the guitar and makes a beautiful beautiful sound out of it well here's the thing he actually this was an interesting observation. I, I thought that he made this funkier than the original, which is weird because they it's were not funk? that the well, it's not that the original was necessarily funk. The original, was, of course, is disco, but within disco is an element of funk. Yeah. So yeah, that there's that that bass, you know, the bass actually <laughs> there is that bass uh, period. But the funny thing is that here you have almost a more raw funk. And yet, the funny thing is that this, as an album, is really not raw funk. Nothing what, nothing that Les Claypool does is really raw funk. It's this weird slapdash blend of jug band meets bluegrass meets southern rock with these little funk solos. So there's funk infusion on top of all these other styles. And that's what made this kind of interesting. And the solo, is, is it's very present within this particular solo here. 
Um, well, yeah, this track was also very reminiscent of how strong the, the raw funk was in We Own His Big Brown Beaver. It's very reminiscent of that. There's this kind of raw baseline sound that really comes through in this song as well that makes it that caricature that really makes it stand out. But that's not to say the raw is actually a distortion or anything like that. It's crisp. The it, the edges are sharp. And that, I think, does... That, that changes that rawness. Um, it it kind of turns it on its head. It doesn't have any real major distortion or drawback of, of what you would think of as quote raw well all raw and well, that, again i mean, i was different. merely using that in in uh respect to the word well, funk whether you it depends on how you like your funk how do you like yeah. your funk sir no but that's most what I'm people saying. do like it crisp most people but i'm i'm saying like it's it, it i think raw i just want to explain that connotation of the word raw raw is <laughs> kind of chunky and meaty and bloody when it comes to mind this is very sharp and it's that that cut off edges that really really keep it from being too much. I keep it within the funk. Hmm. Alright, I'll, I'll buy it. I mean, at least just on the point of what you said about uh, it being a, uh, a a joke versus serious, I, I have to go with joke on this. Because yeah, it, it's pleasant with it. It's pleasant. Even though the lyrics can be fairly straight on, There's some, it's the inflection that really changes it up. For, yeah. for instance, uh, when it goes over to the line, you know, ain't going nowhere... It's so grumbly here. Yeah. Why is it grumbly? He he makes these choices that are just so opposite from the way they were from the original. It's clear that this is just a. And again, it was said he he has a quote. This is his his off vacation band. That that's it. Yeah, it's him and a dude, and they're just traveling. Right. And, but and as far you as know what, goes. the fact that he's not hold you know beholden to these standards. Not that he was ever beholden. To I was going to say of he standard. never. Of course was. not. Of course not. But even for him. This album goes a little off the wall, and yet I kind of appreciate that. Not off the wall as, you know, he's being crazy and experimental, but he's experimenting within this set framework, and that framework is sort of an old-fashioned stylization. Yeah, and it, and speaking of this not giving a fuck attitude that he clearly has, and I think that's the fifth time we've said it, um... The, the F word, by the way. Um, Rumble of the Diesel is track eight. This song is the only song on the entire record that starts with a live chat between the two musicians on stage from one of their concerts. Um, and they decide to insult Seattle by saying they don't know how to fish, even though it's obviously very much a fishing town, um, which they don't take kindly to and get booed at. Which, if you've ever been to a Primus concert, every Primus concert starts with the entire crowd chanting... Primus sucks, and throwing things at the stage, and pegging them with stuff. There's this weird dynamic that Les Claypool pushes, where he's an ass on stage, and he wants his fans to be an ass back. And I don't, I don't know why or how it started, but it's a thing. And this this song is the first song on the record that really conveys that attitude that he has with his fans. <laughs> it's a uh, thing, so let's 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 put it live. Let's yeah. make it a label. Um, but the actual. Uh, into the actual intro of the song, after the the uh, uh, exposition of this conversation, sort of became rock, and I don't mean it was kind of like rock or anything. It did a great job of really personifying a rock guitar in every little aspect. Well, I'm gonna say that at least in the bass front, uh, in the very beginning, I was hoping for a little more variety in the riffs um, at this point. But you know, again, there's that. That's bound to happen. There's again, he is dealing with just the duet, so 
he it it does run into problems here and there where I just start hearing the same riff over and over again, or it just starts blending together in your mind because in order to create that consistent rhythm, you just start interpreting them the same. Uh, and that may be, have been one of the problems that you had, Matt. But to be fair, this track really doesn't... St it, it goes into some pretty interesting things right after that. Uh, for instance, the rumble that's there within the lyrics themselves. Of course, it's well, called yeah. Rumble of the Diesel, and you get this verse that is just, he sings so deep, and that's different. So that's that's the little bits of variety that he offers in order to contrast the fact that his grooves have to be so steady and kind of stagnant throughout the album, and the lyric, uh, lyrics that you get here, that he sings the rumble, I like the rumble of the diesel and the smell of the oil, I percolate my coffee off the radiator boil. <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, right. this well, is that ma machismo sort of living off the living off the cuff. Well, this song I actually didn't feel was repetitive at all, because again... Oh, I was just marking, the, the, marking the, on the... Uh, the the beat here... The groove. The, yeah, the groove for me was just that groovy, but... But I saw past it because of those lyrics. I love the rhythm and meter of how they sing the song. It really, really is what pulled me in. And again, those lyrics too. I mean, the fact that and these are connected to the intro. The he says, "I've been chasing tuna for twenty-seven years," so and, it's a fishing song. Yeah, and he dra kind of. but the way he drags and draws his voice down to get that clearly gravelly sound, like he scooped up, a, a, you know, a pile of gravel and swallowed it. I mean, it really you get <laughs> texture. From the way he sings, it is that that it's, you it's really, really do. It contrasts, and that's one of the things. Going back to our discussion on his his singing voice, whether you like it or hate it, I personally think that the fact that he has variation there, that he has so much range, or that he's just not afraid to use the range, because that's the thing. Some people have their comfortable singing range, but then they're not comfortable going outside of that because they know they won't be quote unquote musical. Yeah. But for him, he's not necessarily afraid of that. If he goes outside of that, he can use his edge to another end. I think if Les Claypool ever started worrying about being musical, we'd have a completely different band. <laughs> Just saying. he's the, Being purely musical is, I don't Again, think, I ever his quote, concern. Again, I say quote-unquote musical, yeah, yeah, because yeah. in the end result, it is musical. No, of course. That's the end course. result. But I'm saying, by standard's sake, I don't think he'll ever, yeah, whatever. he'll... He'll ever key into that. All right, but the interesting things that really start developing here is um, the solos. Yet again, the solos start getting pretty damn intense, as they always are. But here it was uh, intense for quite another reason. It was more of a trade-off. It was going back and forth between guitar and bass, and that, I found that amazingly intricate. And then again, you have the break. All of a sudden, all the instruments just pull, and I was really a lot more interested within the next verse because that provides the contrast that you don't get earlier. Here, he starts singing in more of a tenor. Not quite a falsetto, but it's clearly a tenor. It's high range for anything that Les Claypool usually does. And that's a whole separate verse. Looking back to 95, I had a fresh Cummings Repower, Dragon Lines from Albacore, again, uh, yeah. that was from the intro, Till the Market Went Sour. That's... This it's was a such a twangily song. beautiful verse. That was such contrast to the early one. It gave me the variety that I was looking for. So... The, the song yet again succeeds by different ways because he knows how to play off of the alternatives. Well, and also the song, ha the re I think the reason it has that live intro where they're messing with the fans is because it's a, this is a great track to perform live, I'm sure. Especially that back and forth that you hear between the guitar and bass. It's almost like they're competing with each other, which is always fun for an on-stage performance because you can almost imagine it. 
because until now it's usually been one or the other or yeah. it's like all right well the, co- the, the guitar together. had been color up until now well let's finally give it the solo and yeah. now here all of a sudden that's yes they mesh yeah um it's time to move on to pipeline track number nine the venturas originally did this track that was back in the 60s and of course it's been covered several times this was a bit odd just yeah. because even for this album uh, which dips into a variety of styles, but still you can solidify that 1930s era thing. Here you can't. No. Here, this is clearly 60s. This is surf rock. It's or rockabilly no. or exotica, however you want to put it's it. It's not surf rock, it's surf funk. This and was... This funk is had, weak, though. Funk is weak. It was surf rock. The Venturas were surf rock, hands down. No, and no, no, no. I mean this rendition. Oh. It does, it does divert from the original... You're grasping at tiny straws here. At that point, either way, <laughs> at this point, it's it's a surf song. It's clearly a surf song, and and it's I don't know. Like here, was, again, whether it, I did, I get some points off for not being, I guess, of the style of the album. Whether that's really a concern at this point, but, but I don't care. But, I loved it. All right, yeah. I well, I I liked it a lot. I liked I it because it. I liked it because of the textural shift yet yeah. again. And in this case, the textural shift is the fact that it becomes a lot more muted. Notice everything is kind of not as crisp, not as poppy here as it was in the it tracks was, that were more wet. oriented toward funk. It was really wet in its rendition. It yeah, was... that's actually not a bad description as far as music descriptors go. Yeah, it was, um, it, <sighs> beneath that, of course, you have this Western style. That's the other thing. I mean, you could place it in the 60s, but then again, the 60s were sort of fusing their whole, um, rockabilly surf rock with all the Westerns that were out at the time. So within that, it, I mean, it almost kind of does fit the stuff you'd expect from Les Claypool because he's no stranger to westerns, as we clearly see with tracks like Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. You know. I mean, I don't know. For me, this track didn't really hold a lot that I was looking for. It wasn't necessarily bad. It was too short to really also really make me dislike it. Um, it It felt very out of place to me, and I get that you enjoyed it, so it didn't really matter, and that's fine, but for me, since I didn't love it, I kind of wish they had stuck to the theme at least. But in the end, it's still a joke. You have to accept it as yeah. somewhat of a joke. Like, it has a little bit less camp than you'd expect, I guess, from a traditional song in this in this uh, vein. But it really revs it up uh, back in, the, in a later verse with this very intense, like, Mexican-style chorus that starts stepping in. The kind that you'd, you know, expect on any street scene in a very, very over-the-top, exaggerated Mexico. Right, or a mariachi band almost yeah, kind exactly. of sound. Yeah, and I get that, and I get that it's supposed to be a joke, but I guess... And it modulates within that, which also takes you away from the kind of typical 1-4 that they go back and forth. And the final little piece of it uh, slowed downs and devolves and truly leaves me... And it ends the song with a chilling feet uh, feeling going down my spine. The ending was probably the most powerful part for me because of the way it just takes it, it takes itself apart. It falls apart, and just the way everything chaotically crashes i i i'm attached to that part of the song it's chilling yeah, interesting so you have this even though it's a fairly straightforward song you have the same odd attachment to it as i did the um the sea shanty earlier yeah, yeah. well i think that's just i love dick dale and the very famous miser and everything he did i love surf oh dick dale rock. is amazing yeah i love surf rock i think dick dale was actually present within the well he was in the victorious was it? no or was he the, um, well, it goes back to that 
era, so whatever. Right. Yes, <laughs> and he was one of the greatest instrumental. Yeah, but I, I, I feel like He's... I saw his name on this track somewhere, which is why it's kind of interesting to me that you said Dick Dale. Um, well, he's the most famous surf rocker of all time. That's well, then, then it would make sense if he was involved with this track. Mm-hmm. Uh, that moves us to Buzzards of Green Hill, which is, yet again, another uh, work from his solo album. In this case, uh, the album Purple Onion uh, by Les Claypool and the Frog Brigade. So this is the only one of Les Claypool's solo records that I'm actually quite familiar with. I own Purple Onion. Um, it has a song on it that I've always equated to being just a Primus song because I got very annoyed that I had to listen to it on a separate playlist, so I would name it all Primus and listen to it together. There's a song called Ding Dang <laughs> on the Purple Onion you're fueling album. our topic for later. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, there's, a, the, there's a song called Ding Dang on that same album that I really wish they actually covered on this record. I think it would have fit this really well, but that I like a lot. Um, however... I had forgotten about this track, Buzzards of Green Hill, until we re-listened to it and went back to it, because I had not listened to it in a while. So, this track, I mean, I don't know. I, I like it. I don't love it as much as I've loved previous tracks on the record. This had my favorite choruses. And not because of the words, but because of the inflection. It was some of the most unique work that he does on it, with the, the, the almost whispering nature of uh, when he starts off with the word Johnny yet at the same time the verses are some of the 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 really textured verses that I love from poetry with lines like this little piggy won't cast a stone that little piggy won't pick up a bone but these little piggies won't stand alone when justice needs to be fed (laughs) and he's taking these nursery rhymes and reimagining them in a very serious that tongue-in-cheek kind of a nature the topics are becoming more serious, yet it really is still silly. I, it, it's got the best of both worlds for me. It's got really awesome vocals, separate from really awesome lyrics. I kind of wish they had been a little more meshed, though. Yeah, um, well, I don't know about that. I think they meshed in their own way, but then again, of course, that's up to uh, up that's to taste. taste. Yeah, but um, yeah, for me, again, this musically, it started off signature groove, but this is going to change as the track develops. Uh, because the singing easily made up for that once it started. The, the 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 chorus, you have this rising up and down, the pentatonic, and that was sort of the style here. And you get the lyrics like the Johnny come lately all through the country. They come from the city. Uh, the jo- Even just using the phrase Johnny come lately speaks to what we were saying earlier, how you have uh, these words that are obviously just from deep south. I, in fact, the last time I even heard someone say Johnny come lately, I think was in the movie Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I think it was a line used by the mayor or the governor which <laughs> but um that that again it's it's a very very old-fashioned kind of thing and then you step into a fast section which brings into other nursery rhymes you get the little fuzzy wuzzy was a baby bear <laughs> little fuzzy wuzzy didn't have no hair i remember this from when i was just like three years old yes of course yeah and the little fuzzy wuzzy didn't care that's right. And well, it says, no, in this case, it's, but he didn't give a hot damn. Because <laughs> that's the way Les Claypool likes to phrase things. And then after that, we get yet again another amazing solo. But I'm not going to be so simplistic with this. I'm not going to leave it at that this time. Because it was based on the underlying groove, which, of course, any solo that expands off of an existing groove is, is very important to me because it defies the... Uh, the unsaid rule that you could just throw into any solo into any song a, the the best solos that have ever been written are always based off the song themselves they're not merely cut and paste kind of things 
And this particular song, the, the solo, it starts off with the groove, and then the guitar steps in and takes over with this with this sort of waning back and forth. It expands upwards gradually, and then it meanders, taking on a little bit more of a funk personality at this point. And then it returns to the groove, and everything just halts with that sort of stomping rhythmic fashion before re-entering the final chorus. It's a really, really tasteful thing. Again, I, we don't break down solos a lot because a lot of times we don't get such great solos. And I think that's a really, really important thing about this work because it separates Les Claypool from the pack. So that even when he's doing his bullshit uh, vacation band, he's still able to be a kind of a virtuoso when he does it. And that's what kind of separates this work a little bit for me from the pack. I mean, I will say that obviously we've talked a lot about the guitar solos, and it's a unique thing also to Primus. Because again, as I said earlier, Primus is known for a lot of things, but their sweeping guitar solos is not really one of them. They've, I'm sure they've had great guitar solo moments. I can't imagine that they didn't. But when you think Primus, you think bass first, and then you think a lot of other things. Guitar solos are definitely not at the top of the list. So it's nice to oh, see. Oh, there it are here. good guitar. I think Tommy the Cat had amazing I'm guitar sure it solo. did. Like, but I'm saying it's not. They weren't on a level like this constantly. You know, you'd get a guitar solo here and there with Primus. This, it's song after song, has a guitar solo, which is great and very different for a Les Claypool well, work. It, well, it speaks to the Appreciate fact that, that he can take a step back. There's, there's two yeah. people playing here, and you said that most you get a, a little tambourine. Yeah. It's, 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 there is just really no competition in this case. Um, they both know that they can be in the forefront, and sometimes at the same time. Well, ideally, there's no competition. I mean, that would be pretty bad if in a two-person... I mean, in a duo, you have competition. If you're just two people, then you can work it out. You know, if you haven't worked out the details, then that's not a very good duo. I mean... Clearly, the, they have, though. They've the, worked out the all The white the stripes were exactly the same way. Just having the two instruments playing off one another. Well, that's a With, thing like, Seven Nation, uh, Seven Nation Army, their most famous song, was just drum, bass. They're all drum bass. No, no, no. But a, it was them. it was because of that combination of just them waxing and waning off of one another. You're getting the same effect here on the album scale, and it's it's working because they're they're up because to stuff. They're, yeah, because they're up to stuff and because they're in sync. I mean, I think that was yeah, it's good that you brought in invoked the White Stripes because I think that's why they were success by many standards. In fact, they didn't even have to be up to snuff. In fact, there's a lot of some criticism that's surrounding her her drum playing style but then again it works in much the same way that we say that Ringo's drum style worked perfectly for the given art form yeah. so you know it's all about it's all about form at that point and how you're going to present it uh but that takes us to Hendershot track so, 11 so Hendershot uh, was it Les Claypool and the Holy Mackerel was that yes, this one Les, yeah. this was a cover of Les Claypool and the Holy Mackerel another band <laughs> another band that he's created solo um, work <laughs> um this was another solo work um and this song from the moment it starts the bass line gives this kind of looming kind of sort of bizarre feeling which which works for the story very well um that they're trying I think to it convey was the here spanish style that made yeah. you think that yeah it was it 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 almost harkened back to pipeline in that it feels like it's still in that same sort of general region. It's not Spanish. It's more of Americanized Spanish guitar. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Kind of like what we got which, before wasn't really like Mexican. You know, it was exaggerating Mexican because that's the way they see it in the Southwest. And this one, this one, I, I really enjoyed when the vocals cut out and it became the more solo exposition. 
because the speed didn't change yet it felt like the pace was increasing dramatically at times and it was an unusual feeling well the music in this track was definitely more engaging for me than the lyrics not that the lyrics were bad per se i just i really like no no no, i'm gonna agree with you the lyrics weren't really that oh it was they were just there the vocals were the more important part is that right musically this song stood out a lot more because of everything else going on besides the specific lyrics it was inflection and he could i felt like he was writing this one for his voice to give you an example of those their lyrics lonely lonely boy they called him lucy mama's little man and she calls him hendershot his ma'am called him hendershot (laughs) yeah it's (laughs) kind of straightforward yeah they're very straightforward storytelling lyrics you know but but it's how they were saying walking down the side streets of soho you'll bump into your friend hendershot that's Hendershot. Yeah. <laughs> it says this repetition. It's just, yeah, spoken the lyrics sound downright boring, but but the way they were sang in the song really gave it a different kind of feel. I didn't really love this song, but I, I liked the music a lot. I thought that, that what was going on behind the lyrics was really the f- focus point for the song for me and what I enjoyed most. Well, I... I would give it some points at least for again exploring new territory. Again, this this the guitar style here really took on a Spanish character yeah. to it, which is very different from anywhere else in the album. Yeah. So again, uh, it depends on how you want to see this. On one hand, you could see it as like departing the uh, the theme, as it were. But again, we're talking about a solo Les Claypool album, so <laughs> theme. I mean, we're lucky <laughs> we've mark? gotten this much theme to begin with. Yeah. So. Again, I think this is really that area... You remember back when we reviewed uh, They Might Be Giants, Nanobots, of episode course. 38? They started to get a little bit crazy toward the middle end of the album where yeah. it was all these little no. one-shots. Well, I have to tell the audience. Sarcasm. There were all these little one-shots. Like five-second, five ten-second, maybe 15-second songs. Just Four basic little things. And they, yeah, there'd be many in a row. And it was clear that they were just like experiments. It was essentially just like whacking off right there on the album. Like, one, hey, it's some stuff we wrote. One of them was literally wrote. called There. And it was about There It Is. And that was the whole song. I did the, why I you, did the whole song. Funny why you called these lyrics that they were just there. Because I think it serves about the same purpose. Granted, yeah. it's, not in a, it's not in a group. Uh, so we don't get the same like section of b-sides within an album as you do there but i'm telling you there's an area in the latter in the latter half of this album the middle later half where things just seem to you know be sort of straightforward either way they still offer you an amazing solo and it's still more intricate than anything else we typically hear yeah but the i mean after hendershot the tracks we get into for me personally just don't hold up as strongly as the earlier part of the album did. Um, and this is where we're going to get into some disagreement. But um, I want to introduce the next song that we talk about. <laughs> next, abstain from this. Because the next song, they cover Man in the Box, best known by Alice in Chains, one of the grunge kings of the mid-90s. So Man in the Box had a very specific style, the grunge version. It was very uh, brooding, you know, heavy rock, you know, lots of guitar and drums and distortion. This was not that. This was emotionally completely different. There were moments of similarities, but for the most part, it was a very, very different feel. Um, It sounded more Western. um, It was jauntier than the original. um, And this is where I can, while I wanted to strangle John during our... um, uh, Everlast review, I can kind of see 
how when you feel strongly about a very specific song, how someone changing it can ruin it for you. Because that's how I feel about this song. For better or worse, of how they feel about the song, I just I just feel it ruins it for me. But that said up front is completely personal taste. And of course, for anyone who's curious, Matt's reference is going back to Everlast's uh, The Life Acoustic back in episode 65, and we're referring to the final track there, Jump Around, based on his original uh, Jump Around with, um, was it? Uh, House, House of, of Pain. Pain. Right. And in this case, it is me who loves this reimagining, who finds it to not necessarily better. Obviously not better. I just love the reimagining as a Western. It fits for me. It fits the theme that the album has been building. It fits the instrumentation the album is building. And I I love it. I really do love it. It has that same sort of idea of reimagining that Staying Alive, very another very famous song, had with a guy, maybe Texas, maybe Louisiana, maybe Mississippi singing this song and making it his own. And that's what I feel a lot of these covers are. Reimagining it in the same sort of a story, but one guy is trying to tell these stories. This, yeah, the speedier version is mostly in the beat work, and I do enjoy that that pickup to it. There are samples here where you can see exactly what he what he's doing here in order to sort of spice it up. For instance, uh, John just compared it to a western. There's little things here, like the uh, whip? like the cor no, like the chorus of "Feed my eyes, can you sew them shut?" The way he sings that single line, it replaces it so that the sort of grungy industrial edge that you would have got back in uh, back in Alice in Chains here you get this sort of Mexican choir again, similar to like what you got earlier, where the style is kind of hard to describe, but the one way to put it is that it's not right up against the microphone. The microphone sounds very much in the distance, like it's hearing you in the distance, you and the audience. You've just put like the microphone at the back of the auditorium, and that way they can sing really, really loudly and get to those major heights that they do, uh, that many mariachi bands really do when they start singing and the duet between uh les claypool and and the guitar player brings that out perfectly it's actually kind of kind of cool it's kind of invigorating the way they do that um that's something you don't get back in allison chain so granted it changes it up but it offers you something new it offers another element that's really what what covers are about it's not all about just delivering you the same exact thing now, granted, I'm because I'm playing moderator here, and I don't really care one way or another which one is is, is better. It's um just what what this can provide that's that's different or new as covers should. But specifically to the comparison, um, jump around. One of your main gripes, John, was the fact that it changed the emotion for you that you appreciated the old emotion. And in this particular case, while well, Matt doesn't appreciate the new emotion just as you didn't appreciate the new emotion there but i still think even as moderator i still think you can defend it on certain musical grounds that this introduced more than uh uh than um everlast solo cover did and i actually would agree with that assessment because me and matt came to verbs and adjectives and less than nice things before the podcast because this was this is a really polarizing song. If you are a huge Alice in Chains fan, this you are you're probably not gonna like this song. Luckily for me, in my opinion, I'm not a huge fan. 
I like the original. Well, maybe the uh, the listeners want a transcript of those adjectives and verbs that you exchanged with <laughs> said guy over there. And um, who's glaring at you? But in with uh, just just going back, and we won't dwell on it for too much. With Jump Around, I feel like they took a energizing high end song and made it depressing. Here, I feel like the theme worked while it's not as I, I don't know downer as the original I, I think is that a, I'm brooding the brooding. original was Thank brooding you. it's not as brooding I still feels like it's within the same sphere of emotions I don't feel it as as diverse as the original I as, just uh, jump around I just completely disagree I, I the emotionality of this song is not the same as the Alice in Chains version of course That's it's not of course it's not but why should it because I like the original better. The, the, the reality here is it's not a matter of what's better made. And that wasn't John's gripe either. No. It was mostly the fact that he just liked the original version better. He felt it ruined what the original was going for. Despite that in that particular instance, I do feel that the original was better made. And this particular case, well, th- this particular case, it's harder to say um, for me. Which is I, fine, but what I'm saying is that for me, it ruins what the original represented. And that's enough for me. And whether it was better made or good quality, I mean, I'm not saying the song is bad because it's not. It's less Claypool. He can sleep through okay songs. He's one of those artists who could probably write an okay song in his sleep. I just don't like it personally. I hate it because it ruins what I originally loved. Man in the Box is one of my favorite songs. And it's this is not the same. And that's it. Yeah. For I mean, me. The only thing whether it's for you or not though I'd have trouble accepting that as a rating uh, booster or or but it's um, not detractor. and I well, didn't say it was okay, and enough. for me Jump fair Around enough. I actually He's... discredited that whole song and pretended it didn't exist when doing the album rating it's, 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 it's yeah, not affecting the album review it's affecting how I feel about this song that's it you an know? album you know the, the whole bit right no it's not going to detract from the album the, how I feel about the album stands alone whether this track was there or not Okay. There's enough examples of what I did and didn't All like. All right, then on something completely completely separate from the Alice and Chains reference here, regardless, I mean, we have a solo here, which I thought changed personalities from time to time, and I thought that was kind of cool. A little creepy, but I think yeah. it actually speaks to the, what was going on anyway, yeah. and I liked it for <laughs> The that. album is changing in personalities, why can't the solo too? And no, the, the it, yeah, a little creepy and speaks to what Man in the Box is. It was fun. Do we have consensus? Is, yes. can, can, we, can we move on? Oh, okay. I think we can. All right. Well, this one we're kind so of on consensus about. This is, this is one that we're really on board with one another. This Diner, which is also off the uh, Purple Onion album, his solo work. This was a pretty basic song. Because just to just to harken back to um, uh, to the sea shanty from earlier, which uh, is just what I continue to call it. Because it's what Track I five, to call it. Track five, the bridge came troubling down. Thank you, John. Tumbling, not troubling. <laughs> Trumpling. I like that though. It's a cool verb. Doesn't exist. One four five. Yet again the same progression, to be honest. But in this case, you don't got those variations. You really don't have the variations that I cited at length in order to provide for the audience some sort of semblance as to the variety that I see within that track that separates it from the pack here. I simply don't see it. This the baseline is as simple as it gets also it is over and over and over and over and over again. It's easily the simplest bass line on the album and the simplest chord progression on the album. It's tiresome. And I heard the original as well. Kind of tiresome. I mean, a little bit more, perhaps, for the original. I think the original had 
a very bizarre intro that made me wonder. It had wonder. a strange intro. It had layering in the vocals. It had it had unique things peppered enough through it that it was more engaging than this version. This version is dull through and through, and the reason mostly is because not only does it have the repetitive bass, but there's no variation in the singing. There, the lyrics are simple and unengaging. It's they're literally just singing about eating at a diner and the food. They choose. They and repeat pancakes the like 18 times. No, my biggest... What happened to the guitarist? He wasn't Where as, was he? as prevalent Where here. Where was he? He was blended in the background, being just as repetitive as the bass was. Why? That's that's yeah. a big thing. Why? They never did that before. It had never been done before on this album. Except when they were trying to do something magic with a different aspect. Either the bass or the vocals. This, they decided to just be baseline. I think be, we're in agreement that yeah. the, the, the thing with this track, at least at this place in the album, it was very apparent that, that you know, someone just fell asleep at the wheel a little bit. Because yeah. I, I really, I have trouble understanding the reasoning for including this one particular song out of all of Les Claypool's covers that he could have covered, all of Primus's work, the pantheon of music, as it were. I just don't see... The, the reason for this song, except for to perhaps provide a little bit of filler and just kind of lead you into the, you know, something to tune out to. That, that's but I, exact... that's not that's not really that's not a positive in my end. No, it's not I positive never, at I all. I never this, really like tuning out during an album. This track is filler. It's Les Claypool wanted a fourteen wanted the tra- the album to be fifteen tracks wanted it to be over an hour. Well, I need another song. Well, Dee's Diner at the bass bones is very simple. Let's just do that, strip it down completely, and not put an air. I mean, maybe not because think, that's the thing. Because of I the stripped down, that, yeah. I think it's because of the stripped down atmosphere that he saw this as the type of song that could effectively be stripped down. The only problem is that once it was stripped down, it 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 was stripped too down, yeah. to the point where you there's not enough there left, you know, from the original. I don't know. It, it's. That's just my take on it. Maybe other people might see this differently. But I don't. It, I don't really. It was very weak. By I don't contrast. really see how anyone could see it differently. It's just there's nothing to see. There's nothing to interpret here. Right, so it's very face value. That's our one consensus dud, uh, which leads us to the Battle yeah. of New Orleans, which originally was uh, performed by Johnny Horton. This in case, uh, this is also just a straight up cover. This is a straight up yeah. cover from an existing track, and uh, anyone. I, well, I, maybe not anyone, but it's a very common track. It's, I think it was used in a Disney movie, I want to say. But Probably. It was used in various places of pop culture. It's a very well-known American song about, you know... Fighting the Brits, fighting the in, Brits in, yeah, in New Orleans. 18, was it 18... You know, I thought I remember the date 1814 in there, in which case that's after the War of 1812. So that's weird. I think this was actually during the Civil War, which would have been... 1814 a, is not the Civil War. No, no. it was. I think it was during the Civil War. Maybe I got the date wrong. Which I believe puts it in the 1850s, late 1850s. I think it has something to do with that. I'm not... I, 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 I wasn't yeah, paying. This is what I remember reading Either somewhere. that or it's fiction. Who knows? Because... Or, well, or it's like interpretive fiction or something. But this is... I this swear is, I remember in the lyric was 1814. That's this weird. is like the chant for the Marines when they start talking about the Al- Alamo and Guadalajara. I think that's what it's from. Um, this is a marching song. It's a good old boy song. Yeah, this is one where I wish we would have come into a little more preparedness because it's a very, very well-known American track. And it, to be honest, it's an enjoyable to hear, story. Yeah, to hear Les Claypool do it is 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 right on the money. I think he's got the perfect voice for this kind of thing. Um, you know, as a cover, I guess it's one of those again. It's a little bit of an odd choice. Not so, but it was enjoyable at least by contrast to the previous. I still enjoyed this track. Yes, I did too. Yeah, but it really it but, didn't leave me, you know, going. Oh, that was a great. 
X or Y or Z or X, Y, and Z. This was just, oh, it's pretty good. Well, I have yeah. a feeling they still threw in the courtesy solo, but then again, in this particular case, I would offer a little bit of questioning as to, you know, could have been in any song, perhaps, and, well, they threw it in this one. Eh, well, whatever. also, this song, my my problem with it was, while it was better than Dee's Diner, I mean, anything smells good compared to poop. Like, I mean... Aww. I'm not, I'm not saying Dee's Diner is poop, but my, what my point is is that comparing this to Dee's Diner, I mean, yes, of course it's better than that. We well, didn't this, like that It was really a conspicuous was dud. Yeah. Dee's Diner is bread and water. It's a song in the most basic uh, sense in that just like a bread and the, water is a meal. It's technically a meal. This, this is a, bread, water, and butter. This is a cheese sandwich. Yeah. yeah it's, I like, it's nothing. There was not much more, I but I would give it a little, little bit more, more credit than that because... Despite the, I mean, perhaps the song is just so ubiquitous in American culture that I simply cannot place it because I've probably heard it in so many things. So I wish I could be more specific about this track. I really, really could. But maybe that nostalgia was enough to hike it up a little bit further for me. That could be. I mean, it just def- like it definitely wasn't as bad as Dee's Diner, but didn't engage me as much as half the other songs on the rec- record. Come on. And but the British kept it coming. And the- <laughs> it was, and it was fun. And they ran away and we lived. Yeah. But not what people go to Les Claypool for. I'll for sure say not. that. Yeah. Speaking of what people go to for Les Claypool, whatever. whatever. Jerry was a race car driver. This, yes. of course, this is, is a... many people hold this song very, very highly. Is in terms of Primus's work. This was off of Sailing the Seas of Cheese. That's right. Um, it was one of the singles from that record. Um, the original version is very fast-paced. Lots of car sound effects. Um, a lot of storytelling, talking. The higher pitch. Um, Les Claypool singing that was very, very everywhere on um, Sailing the Seas of Cheese, except for a few songs. That that one I found to be a great cruising song. Like the, sign of thi- the kind of thing that you just groove to, that you just go with. I didn't really see the speed. Here was speed. This was furious. This song Front, was back, m- much faster than the original version. Um, they sped it up quite a bit. Um... They also took a different kind of style with the singing. Um, it was n- not as steady as the original was. The original, his voice didn't vary much in the style of singing. Whereas this, he kind of, you know, did what he's been doing a lot on this album. He kind of... Played with it. Yeah, he played a little more with it. Um, and this, of course, as well, had a solo. Uh, one of the longer solos on the record as well, towards the end. This was the best solo. Because it did... Everything. I honestly think this was well. It's about as good, perhaps, as um, as one of the earlier. I think that may have been Booneville Stomp, which was also a contender for best solo. But that's the thing. There's so many solos in this album, and they're all so damn good. This is just a great closer. So yeah, this is one of the better ones, and it's a great way to close. But it did but speed, but, but it did speed thing. guitar. It did draw. No, guitar. no, no. That's the thing. It did even everything. even if it's not the best solo, and I still think it's great. I really do. It does have it's it's the most virtuosic. It has the best fingering on the album. Even when you're not in the solo, the song itself is just really, really fantastic. Right. Well, also the 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 solo here is going through different stages, and it's definitely the most unique solo I feel on the record as well because it goes through motions and movements. It also this song, this version of it. Um, like the original, the way the, the the guitar and bass is being finger-picked is very reminiscent of the original. The original, you they created that kind of car feel from the way that guitar was plucked. And which that's is why I definitely here. heard cruising, which is why I definitely heard a speed-oriented, but it was more of a from far away. This, I feel like I'm 
The original felt like I was watching a Lamborghini going down the road. This one felt like I was into Lamborghini and well, Formula One barreling down the street. Well, the original song in this song, I mean, the lyrics of the first verse is telling a story of a race car driver. It's like you're watching the race, not you're in the he was, race. He wasn't very good, but he never came in last, so he was just okay. So that distance that you feel in the original, I feel is kind of appropriate to the way it was played, because the they're telling you about this guy who used to race cars. But, and it's but also, then this, that was like just the first verse. But then the second, second verse, verse goes into like Captain no, or other. This, this which is ass, if you're looking for no, sense no, no. in a the Primus second verse song. is about this hard ass fire captain who really was you know great fireman all over the place. Couldn't they? He couldn't believe they made him retire because he could have kept doing it. But they, they made. Him <laughs> I mean, stop. the reality. I mean, this is this is signature example of of Les Claypool's uh, sense of humor and his sense of storytelling, like tell these two separate individual stories that can tie together in perhaps a loose sense because you see someone at the top of their career like Penny Lane. and then someone falling away from their career. Career, yes, exactly. It's exactly. exactly. Like, exactly. It's just like Penny Lane. Yeah, They're, they but, may they may live in the same town. They may yeah. not. It doesn't really matter. It's They're almost just irrelevant to the song. Um, I still, yeah, I guess it's loosely oriented, but I still say that this particular version did have a little bit more pep. It's pretty obvious, yeah. and it made me rethink the original song because I, I really have to say, I love, I love most of original Primus's work. Although even then, it did kind of go back on certain things, back and forth. I mean, but uh, when it came to Jerry was a race car driver, I just had to sort of revisit it to to gauge what I really felt about it. And honestly, eh, it was it ended up being a little bit more repetitive than this, believe it or not. And that was the the stripped up version so you know that's just a little bit that's the way that's the cookie crumbles that's, that's what you saw the, the yeah. reality of this song is i believe both versions were good in different ways you can't really compare them i i enjoy well, like i love watching lamborghinis go by but I, I would like to drive one once in a while i i enjoy the original i like it in its regular form mostly because i like that race car nas nascar feel to it you know that down home feel but this also kind of gives you that very much speed you still never demon grew feel. out of that phase of wanting to be a race car driver when you grow up I still make noises pretty much when I'm driving I still got room. but, but, ah, but, but thing, after man. multiple listens of this version of it I like it but for different reasons I don't you think you accept one, it a lot more than that first time I know that um, I, I but I I prefer the original but not because of better or worse I just prefer the original it's what I'm looking for in that song that said this song does hold up and it is a good choice for a close and a great bookend to Weona being the intro because, you know, the intro intro was what it was. Um, well, that about closes the album. Now, here's an interesting thing, uh, just uh, as I go into my wrap-up here. We have talked... We've made a lot of good points, I think, on most of these songs. The one thing that I think was a little bit lacking is because I don't think anyone expected such uh, such intense solo work on this album, which is why I think our, our reviews were a little bit uh, weak in that department. I tried to flush it out as best I could in, in certain areas. But the fact of the matter is, this is the essence of this album. There's no accident, of course, almost every single song has a solo in it. It's very, very important that they do because that's the essence of this particular project. And it's like comedy. If you gotta explain the joke, you just won't get it. A solo, we can't go too in-depth into. Well, I, in fact, the I only would way... have gone more in-depth into if I had expected it. It threw me a little bit off guard. Experience is what will make it worthwhile. This is an album, and I'm gonna say it before we even go into the wrap-up. You gotta listen to it. You have to listen to it while we're trying to explain it. It's very important. Go back and listen to the whole thing over again. Now listen to our wrap-up. <laughs> 
Well, there's things... It depends on who you are. If you are a Primus fan, you are going to get certain things that are familiar and then certain things that are very foreign. Um, amongst those foreign things are, of course, the 1930s bottleneck guitar style playing of the fellow member guitar player duet whose name escapes me at the moment. Nevertheless, it's pretty damn virtuosic. And it's not what you find in Primus. So I don't know whether a Primus fan would be into this necessarily. It would strike me as odd for anyone really not to be. Because usually, if you're into Primus, you're usually into very, very intricate playing. Because Les Claypool's own bass style, which was so so prevalent in Primus's work, that, that just jumped out. It leapt out at you because it was so crisp. And so unlike the typical backstage bass player who just sort of plays his groove and does his job, instead this is... Filled with attitude. And in that particular case, you still get that here, but you get the attitude in a whole nother way as well. You get it introduced in the guitar. And you're introduced with the same, you know, there was that always that southern element to Primus's work, and even Les Claypool's other solo work. Here you get that as well, but with a twist. Instead, it's more of a bayou-driven thing. So it's more of a focused work, to be honest. Uh, in something that has its roots in in other areas of music that you can identify specifically. That's a thing you could never really identify Primus perfectly. You could kind of throw it in new metal. You could kind of throw it in alternative funk, you know, and all that other stuff. You could throw that in here too, but you do have something you can really, really latch on to. Um, that almost makes it a little bit superior, at least, to some of Les Claypool's other solo work, which I think really did lack a little bit of direction. Some of it. Not all of it. Um, of course, I'm not rating against that. I'm not really rating against Primus. But, you know, it is about what the what that particular listener might be looking for. Either way, you're going to be getting some pretty rockin' solos. And that's the thing. And I really expected this. I probably would have used this as the opportunity to go into a much more detailed musical review. There would be some things that I could do, and there would be some things that I can't do. Some things I could do would, of course, be to break down those solos on a really, really musical level. And I would love to do that later on when we get that opportunity and I'm prepared for it. Um, the thing that I couldn't do, specifically with this work, though, is to connect it to the rest of the track in a wholesome way. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. So you made that point, Matt, that sometimes it feels like it's just a solo you could throw in there. It could be in any other song. No matter how awesome that solo is, no matter how intricate it is, it's, it's movable. It, it, it's drag and drop completely integral to that moment in that song exactly but sometimes it is sometimes right. it really truly is based off of the groove and I think that's where this mo this uh, this this album really shines um, when you take that back and forth even the moments where it's not integ integral it's it's still damn good uh, this really is a, is a solo heavy album for me uh, I can't um I mean imp imp improvisatory heavy album that is. I can't really talk too much about lyrics because it's quirky, it's comedic. That's what I've come to expect from Les, Cla Les Claypool. That's what I continue to get here. Um, it's also creative in as much as how he's revisiting his older work. He's making it a lot punchier, a lot crisper. I really, really like the way that's filled out. I think, um, really, the only major detractors are that integration, um, the expansion, perhaps, of certain, uh, of certain sections could have been nice. Maybe... 
I, I would I would even just beg to differ a little bit with his uh his the quote I opened up with where he claimed that the melodies had to take a little bit back seat to the rhythm because you only had two people to keep the rhythm going. I would claim that I've seen many other uh, duets do both easily. So I think that's a little bit of a cop out. I think um, I think some certain areas there could be flushed out a little bit better. I think this is just a solid four. I easily put this a little bit above um, uh, Steve Martin and Ebrie Kell's album only because uh, you see easily you see more intricate work here. Remember, we were kind of going back and forth on, you know, well, what's a good banjo player? That's the thing. Are we really listening to a lot of bottleneck guitar playing lately? No, we're not. Just as we hadn't really listened to a lot of banjo playing. And yet I could easily say that this is just phenomenal. It's technical in of a genre that I don't even hear too often. That's hands down awesome. And beyond that, we also get the same storytelling Americana aspect. It's really just a slightly more organized, more original version of that. Lacks some of the same things as that, but contains many of the same things plus better. Solid four. I think I've finally gotten a handle on why I think I'm so disconnected from this album, and I really just didn't enjoy it. Before I get to that, um, this album, I mean, you can't deny the virtuosic work of the soloist. He clearly knows what he's doing. He's a great soloist and a, and a great musician. And of course, Les Claypool is a bass-playing god. Probably the only person I would rate higher than Flea. And that's only because Flea plays bass as a part of a band. He doesn't he takes the forefront in moments, but he's about being part of the mix. Les Claypool stands out ahead of the crowd. He's a lead bassist and he runs the shows he's in most of the time. That said, it was kind of refreshing to see him take a step back and let someone else shine. Not something he's typically known for being very good with. Um, lyrically, it's goofy, silly, in some moments boring. Um, I expected more from some of the lyrics, but that's also because I like how quirky and kooky Primus and Les Claypool is. So when there are songs here where I don't even remember the lyrics, that's a bit of a detractor for me, especially from what I come to expect of him. I did remember the lyrics, most of them. But then again, of course, these are covers, so yeah. you're not getting original work. You can't really put a stamp on it. That would right. be for a different review. Um, but, you know, as far as cover albums go, I mean, it takes a lot of balls to cover yourself, especially so close to some of the releases of these records. They're not that old, haven't had much time to sit there, but he wanted to do something different with them. And truth be told, I mean, I was actually thinking about bringing on an Everclear album for the same reason. They covered a bunch of their old stuff and redid it, essentially did a great, greatest hits where they re-recorded it. Um, it's is something... Everclear as opposed to Everlast. Right? Yes, Everclear. Okay. Um, that mistake was made once. <laughs> and, you know, that's a thing that, that a lot of bands have done, actually. Blues Traveler's done it. A bunch of bands have covered themselves. So it's not that foreign at this point. Um, you know, just because you mentioned it, I have to interject a little bit. Blues Traveler is the perfect example that almost falls in this exact same brand. Blues Traveler I, is defined by that harmonica, by yeah. John Popper's harmonica solos. Solo songs are good. Songs can be great sometimes, yeah. but sometimes you have to wonder how integrated it is because you know the reason you're there. You're yeah. there for that solo to hear something absolutely bizarre, a harmonica soloist, because there ain't many of them in the world, and you're here to see it done, you know, beyond virtuosic levels. Right. He's considered, I think, the only harmonica virtuoso. So there you are. That's that. If that's the feature you're going for, you know, it almost makes this analogous to me. To that. Right. Um, but I don't know. I just, I didn't connect with it and I, I figured out why. 
on an emotional level, this album just didn't resonate with me. Um, that said, it's not to say that there wasn't any emotion in it, because there are definitely songs that have an emotional connection. But as an overall album, I didn't really get anything. Um, I, I don't f- think I resonated emotionally with Primus stuff, though. Well, that, I'm that getting, was not I'm what I getting to that. You interrupted <laughs> me. Please let me finish my sentence. Because I was getting to that. The thing I'm realizing... Stuck a nerve there, man. <laughs> well, yes, because that was exactly the point I was trying to make is I don't know that I will resonate with Primus as much. If I had to rate their albums on a 1 to 5 scale, I don't think as many of them would be 4s as I think they are now for me. Because I think what I connected with at a younger age, I'm just not going to connect the same way now. Primus is not known for an emotional connection in all of their music. And that's apparent in this record. There's not a huge emotional resonance for me. And I think that's what really hurt it for me. And yes, you're right, Steve. If I went back to Primus, I'd probably find the same thing. And I'm realizing that. And I think that's why it falls short falls short for me. I can't rate it as a four. I just emotionally connected much stronger with some of the albums that I rated close to or as a four, as we've been comparing in the last couple of weeks. That said, it's not average. It's way above average, obviously. It You know, he's a talent. His bass playing is unlike anyone else's that alone puts it higher than i thought it would be originally i thought it was fairly average when i wasn't paying enough attention but after listening to it again today i would rate it at a 375 okay i i would put it at a place where i think that there's a lot of good here and i'd be curious to see what else he does but i just didn't get that extra connection i was looking for that's that's a fair rating. The only reason I interjected because then when I you answered my question, but you also didn't answer my question one sentence. The only thing that I was saying is that there are two separate entities in many in many ways. That emotional music and then music that you just gotta be into for the sheer virtuosic, you know, nature present. In other words, just into it. Period. I don't associate that always with like, with a kind of emotion. So it well, yeah, I just I, see them as two separate entities, really. And they can be, but the virtuosic nature enough wasn't enough for me to connect either. And no, that's no, what I'm saying. Fair enough. I, as I said, I wanted I wanted to bring something that I thought these two would like, <laughs> but I also wanted to bring something where I got a great instrumentalist. That was another thing I wanted to choose. I was a little disappointed because. Well, the guitarist was better than the bassist, and I wanted a great bassist. I, I'm complaining about this. <laughs> he was freaking awesome. Everything about this, there was there was two low points. One's the bridge. The other is the diner. Those are the two low points of the album for me. Everything else just kept building and building. Everything else is just enjoyment. I have smiles on my faces, multiple smiles, multiple faces. Listening to this album, it's awesome at parts. Just pure out awesome. I'm creaming over it. But it's got something that we didn't talk about. It actually has a theme. He chose these songs for a reason. One, because he wanted to put a spin on it. But two, and most importantly, it speaks to that theme I mentioned very early on. This is all about the everyday man with magic. The music is the magic in the life. But all the stories are about fairly simple or mundane themes. And that is is something in and of itself that's a great meta level for it that that does bump it up and i was complaining before that i didn't really see any theme work except really in just the styles of the instruments themselves the kind of funk that you get in a little bit of everything because otherwise it kind of is all over the place with 
kind of classic rock, kind of surf rock, kind of southern, kind of Latin influences. There's a little bit of everything going on here. But it does have a unifying factor to it. I love seeing that next that extra little onion layer behind uh, the outside shell working here. The guitarist, that last solo has everything in it that makes any guitar solo awesome. That right there, that's that's like, uh, oh, why am I blanking on the jazz album? Uh, Chikoria. 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 It's like that one Episode instant, 57. that one bass, uh, bass solo, upright bass solo we got, where it was just everybody went quiet. We just look at each other, eyes wide. I had that same emotional con- connection with that solo. It had every little thing I remember from Eagles to Beatles to Rolling Stones, Grateful Dead, the gauntlet of the classic rock. It was everything I wanted this week. That said, it still it still wasn't original work, and I think it may have suffered a little bit for that. It was all covers. So he was still stuck, if you want to say stuck, doing certain things, and that was mostly the lyrics. Yeah, really did have some poetry when he was covering himself. When he was covering not, not even the primer stuff, just his stuff. Had some really fun, esoteric lyric work. But they weren't gripping in any way to really bump it up into four, five, or higher territory. And that's something I always have to look for. But I definitely li- I definitely loved it more than, than the two of you. It's a four, two, five. It is a solid four territory piece for me. Um, not quite awe, but it's pretty damn close for me. I'll say four, one. Oh, I'll bump you... it up to what point one. No, you sold me on two reasons. Uh, one because of the unifying theme, which I don't think. Yeah, you're right. We're overlooking that. Now, that is very, very strong. Right, even though we talked about of, it, that's, we talked about it, but we, we didn't talked it quite a bit. We're just thing. not really applying it, and and that's yeah, that would be unfair because we said it many times. This is kind of what Lace Claypool has always done, and it does feel a lot more focused here. I I danced around that, but it's true. Uh, the second thing that you sold me on is um, well, just sheer virtuosity i think that in itself really it, it's got to be a little bit above four for me and i already considered that that's why mine's a 375 instead of a three five yeah. those two points i've rated really, on the same level those two points put it closer to a four um i don't i i really hated it the first time i listened to it i really didn't like <laughs> it at all it's but he, re- he started by chewing because this is not that's funny because this is the kind of album i wouldn't have expected hate to come for i would have at least expected like all right well, well even if you're not into it you'd at least be into the groove well it's odd. what what probably happened was wrong frame of mind wrong time wrong place i mean a lot of things can all influence. that stuff uh, things can influence the listen but today when i listened to it earlier and then again when we listened to it before we recorded i found some things i didn't see before it's not a terrible work that i thought it was but it still wasn't what I was looking for. But that said, overall, burn it, listen to it, buy it, definitely listen to it. It's worth hearing. Probably There's some a good stuff. Now, wait, one more thing. I'm back to a four. I'm back to a four. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, why Final, did you no, drop it? No, no, there is, there is a All big right, this problem. Is, no, this is the last thing. Last thing. The only thing that the only reason I can't really keep it up into the lower fours or upper, especially upper fours, is just because it's um of of that expansion reason. Because of the cover thing. They are all covers. There's not really original work here, so they're just working off of off of previous stuff and you know the integration thing i need a longer form that's the yeah. thing i longer form would be the ultimate form of complexity <clears throat> regardless of the of the short term which they clearly have so you know 
need a more well-rounded thing. But four is still a very solid rating. And as I was saying, so yeah, definitely check it out and listen to it. Um, you know, it, it it it's on the cusp of listen by, but it's still a solid listen, I think, because there's enough different from what you expect from less to put it in that leery place. And that's that's something I gotta gripe with less. We're on a first name basis now. Yeah. All right. Well, he doesn't know his name, and that's my gripe. What? Les Claypool has gone through <laughs> five. What do you say? <laughs> five ish, six ish, solo bands. He's just, he's a there's front man. There's been a bunch. There's been a lot, and then there's Primus, and everybody says all in the description. It's not just you two. It's a lot of people said Primus. No two albums are the same because the band keeps changing and everything like that, and you're getting. It, like you go through the gauntlet, you probably have the representation of the last thirty years worth of music in their discography alone, let alone what Clay, Les Claypool has actually done by himself. And I'm just, just pick something, a name, pick a name, stick it with a name, go with a name. You're Les Claypool. Be Les Claypool, because I'm on Wiki. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm, I'm Wikipedia is not an easy website to use, but I couldn't get heads or tails off a half of what was going on. Because I didn't know what to reference from. I will say it's unique, you know. Typically in bands, when when they change, the name doesn't change. It's just if the members leave. But the thing is, is with Van Halen, for example, lead singers kept changing. But Eddie Van Halen and Peter Van Halen, I think, was the drummer. Yes, um, were both always in the band for most of it, if not all of it. And it was Van Halen. So and the but. That one, yeah, the sound does change over the years with Van Halen. Well, that's also because Eddie is so drug-addled, he can barely hold a guitar now. And that's, like, how do you call yourself a different band? That's, I think, that's the topic we're going for here. When you well, I don't have, think, have I don't the think... same singer... I, I need to clarify something here. When you say, how do you call yourself a different band? Like, like when... when exactly does your band officially have to change name based on the removal of your core members? Is or, that what your or, question is? Or when should you, or should you change your name just because of a stylistic change and some bands have undergone huge stylistic changes with and still trying to present themselves as the same people they used to be? Uh, perfect example, and I know Matt's going to laugh at me and Steve's going to laugh at me, Weezer. Some of their albums are real different and their new stuff is real different than their original stuff and they still call themselves Weezer. You, well, that's like Metallica. You've enough episodes Metallica. without mentioning them. I'll give you Metallica a pass. Metallica, every time their bass has changed, their sound has changed dramatically as well. Um, and yet they still call themselves Metallica as well. Or when Travis joined Blink-182, they finally had a drummer. <laughs> they had one of the greatest drummers of this era, but they finally had a drummer and their music changed dramatically. Well... Here's an easy answer. There will be harder answers, and we'll get to that. But the easy answer, of course, is marketing. Is that once your name gains steam, it's re- fairly beneficial to keep the name. Regardless of whatever you choose to do with that name, once you keep that name there, Metallica, their emblem, their logo itself, that, that way that M is shaped, is such Ta- a powerful thing. That's, that is money. That is money in the bank. It rolls in because of it. And uh, no, 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 do not hush me on this because this is not... This is not left to a stylistic uh, change or anything. The masses. At the end of the day, that's going to be what matters. Yes. In, in the monetary community. Right, And but I'm not even going to amend that because it goes above that. Sometimes it has nothing to do with marketing and has everything to do with ownership. The reality is oh, yeah. well, Metallica owns the name, those three band members. 
So when the bassist left, it didn't really matter. Van Halen also. Eddie Van Halen owned that name. So even though David Lee Roth, Sammy Hagar, and then the third guy who no one remembers all left, they still own the name. Because whoever owns it is Whereas Les Claypool owned Primus. When he left Primus, there was no more Primus. He wanted to be something else. You're positive about that, that he owned the name. Yes. Why? You're sure about that? Because there has to be instances where, of course, the ownership of a name has to be divided among certain members. I imagine that, well, I mean... Or if not them, the label. (laughs) It depends. Or Primus was owned by the label. But, But either way, it wasn't owned by all of the bands, so when they split, no more Primus. But there are plenty of people who have owned the name and continued. Guns N' Roses is the best example. Guns N' Roses, most of the original band is gone. But Axl Rose owned the name even though the band was crap. So he continued to be Guns N' Roses. I like uh, early Guns N' Roses. No, the early Guns N' Roses was great. Have you heard Chinese Democracy? It's got (laughs) awful. Okay, I thought you were just equating all their music. But but I've heard lots of people uh, bitch about the Chinese Democracy. but But he owned the Guns N' Roses name. So even though Slash is a better musician, he can't use the name Guns N' Roses because it's not his. Yeah, I miss Slash. He didn't go anywhere. I know, but he's he should be. He has in. his own solo projects. I know, but I want. I want and is actually apparently a huge dinosaur nerd. Uh, huh. That I knew. Yeah. Huh. And is best friends with Chris Jericho of all people, the wrestler. Okay, no, that's that's that. That makes more sense. That I didn't know. That's that's more in line. He's got great taste in cards. Anyway. Well, no, I'm going to continue with that. See, that's the easy answer, and I'm going to continue along the same lines of the easy answer before I get to the more difficult answers. And that's, of course, people's interpretation. And this is slightly less important because I still think that in the end, the name will always have have gained enough steam that it that enough people will keep going back to the albums, even if your albums have gone really downhill or the mm. core members have completely shuttled in, shuttled out. It, it, it really doesn't matter in the end because people still recognize the name. But on a certain level, on a secondary level, sometimes it, it does benefit a band really to just kind of spice it up a bit. It's just sort of break up, pursue separate projects, give them the chance to explore... Um, because the second the band does gain a little bit of a bad name, it's really tough to crawl back from that. Really, really tough. Some might argue that it's, well, nowhere near as tough as it would be for an upstart band to gain a name. But then again, if people know the members, if your band has enough, uh, enough carries enough weight to it where people know the individual members, they will seek you out individually, and then they'll, they'll shift their loyalties. They really will move. Well, one example of... Uh... Break it apart and coming back together that worked out well was Black Sabbath 13. Ozzy coming back and doing Black Sabbath again did, it wasn't, you know, War Pigs, but we got a damn good album. True. I mean, any a lot of Black Sabbath fans were very happy with that album. But there are, but there are examples to prove Steve's point as well that letting go of that name and going out on your own can actually prove much more beneficial. Justin Timberlake now, oh yeah, way bigger and way better than when then he was in NSYNC. Actually, whereas I, the rest of the band members trickled off into obscurity. And Backstreet yep. Boys, for that matter, they kind of fell apart too. And they don't do anything anymore. Well, they got back together. They went on tour with New Kids on the Block a couple years ago. Oh, yes. Because that was the hot typic- ticket Actually, item. I have to say, because a friend of mine was obsessed with New Kids, I heard bits and pieces of the new record they put out a year or two ago. Better than their old stuff. They actually wrote again? it. This is new Kids, Kids on the, on the Block. block. Oh, okay. They the put out they of put, the American boy bands. They put, they put in, they put out a new record and 
they wrote all the music and it was actually fairly impressive compared to their old work i mean hanging tough was you know it was a bubblegum pop song written by someone else this there was at least heart soul and work in so it, you know it, it can come and go either way yeah well since you invoked the uh, the pop labels i think yeah that that's where this case is really especially true because um uh, not just for Justin Timberlake, but also for Beyonce to Destiny's Child, of yeah. course. You know, there are certain things in well, pop yeah. which really do fade into obscurity, not because, you know, of loyalty of fans, but just because of the passing of time, because the label will choose not to market you as strongly. You know, the boy band era had its day, and then it passed. It would be really, really tif- difficult, even if uh, Justin Timberlake had ever stayed for NSYNC yeah. to ever continue gating steam, despite how much artistic uh, prowess Justin was throwing into it. It really wouldn't matter in the well, end. Yeah. As a solo person, he ha- he can make the calls, and that's uh, that's important. And he's done really well with yeah. it. I mean, also as, look, as at, Beyonce. look at CeeLo Green. CeeLo Green, when he was in Gnarls Barkley, Crazy was a smash hit. But beyond that, there wasn't much. But then he broke away, and his entire first solo record was rave reviews and huge. And of course, Fu blew up because it was so different. Yeah, he's just he's just pretty good. He's a talented musician. But that's what I'm saying. When you're within a band, sometimes letting go of the name is just as important. Exactly. So now that we've gone through the polar extremes of the easy answers, when you should keep it, when you shouldn't keep it, from a marketing perspective, let's go into the difficult uh, answers, and that is. That is really based on artistic choice. That is what you want your band to be. You as an artist, this is not about caring necessarily what the hell labels want to peg you as or, or how much money you're going to make. This is about what you want your art to be. Well, and penultimately, I think that's where Lace Claypool lies. I think he lies in the gray area. He, the reason he has so many different names for so many different bands is because he doesn't give a shit he wants to do what he wants he wants to have artistic expression he feels the names are just as important as the music i think that's exactly it he could never this is stuff that he probably knows deep down he could never do with primus yeah now of course for primus fans well that's just a shame because it means they have less of less claypool because less of less because he's (laughs) not around as much uh which means you have your hiatuses. But of course, technically, right now, Primus is back together. It's yeah. just he, he can be two places at once. He yeah, and they're as long working as he's on... able to do that long enough, then great. They put out a new record a year or two ago, and I believe they're working on another one. Yeah, interesting. Um, but that's the thing. When he goes off in these solo projects, he knows that, that the Primus members probably either wouldn't dig it, or they wouldn't be into it, or they're just not suited to it, period. Yeah. These are you know He's a solo musician. He's been playing for a good chunk of his life. Of course, there's things that he can come up with on the fly... That the second he creates them, he figures, you know what, maybe that's just good with me and the bass. That's it. Really doesn't need anything else. Otherwise, that would be clutter. Or there's collaborations like this. He's known this guitarist ever since high school. So, obviously, they have a totally different dynamic than everything, anything he ever had with the band, the big band, Primus. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, I think Les Claypool's on the extreme opposite side of that spectrum. Because most people, most artists, I think, are fairly in the middle. They're kind of balancing that idea. Like, yeah, we have this idea, we have this art, we want to pursue it, we also kind of want to make money, we kind of want to make a name for themselves, sure. for ourselves, so in the end, you know, we may end up going with what the label tells us to do. <laughs> well, that's... that's usually, uh, you know, any signed band would have a lot of advisors for this kind of thing. Well, and also, though, that becomes less and less apparent and important as we continue into the era that we're in. I mean, looking at artists who are self-produced like Michael Moore and Ryan Lewis for example like they don't answer to anybody 
and they're huge hits. And they don't answer to the Grammy committee. I mean, that's big. Yeah, they they're and they're in control. And you know, bands like that I wrote my article about. It's also an interesting case that it was Macklemore and Ryan Lewis that they're billed as, which is an important choice because both of their names are there within the name. That means, theoretically, at any point in the future, they could go off and do independent things. People will still recognize them because yep. the name just carries right over. And it also uh, denotes that they feel like you should treat both aspects of their music, the lyrics and the, mu- and the instruments, as equals. Together, exactly. But one band that we kind of glossed over about the whole changing of the band members, which did change the dynamic, even though they do have similarities, is Steam Power Giraffe. Thank you. You're welcome. I need Hatchworth. I think that's and becoming your Weezer in terms of reference. It really is becoming my Weezer, and that's because they are so awesome. Uh. But the <laughs> album one, with the female vocalist, is no, her name was Upgrade, uh, is a lot different than uh, the John, the Two Cent Show. No, the John was in album one. But it's yeah. having that female vocalist, not as a backup, but as a primary singer in a lot of cases, really does change the dynamics of their of their work and their range. While Hatchworth and what he's doing nowadays and his really almost guttural vocals, but high-pitched at times, really does change it up from the John. And this is two main beautiful vocalists working with, over the course of three albums, three different vocalists. The feel is the same from it. Well, and this is, well the reality, I, I, the think feel that, is the I think same. that example is just starting to walk down the beginning of the line of the other polar opposite end of that that difficult answer kind of they thing. They have a shtick. Because well, this, yeah, they have a shtick. But that's the thing. You're you're talking about the beginning of its change starting to occur when you know core members start leaving and new ones be intru- are introduced. Well, but no, no, that's the thing. That's just the beginning of the spectrum for them because in the case of Steam Powered Giraffe, I still think it's very much the stamp of Steam Powered Giraffe. They're not anything drastically different between those two albums. They're advanced, they've matured, but that's not the same as fundamentally changing. Yes. They well, have the same yes. shtick. Well, and also the reality is I'm pretty confident that the Spine and Rabbit own that band and the human counterparts who are in it because they haven't changed. I'm pretty sure that those other members weren't like this is the spine and rabbits project and they've brought other people in and other people have left i think that's why that's gone that way i think they're more in control of that brand there's also the whole space stinger that we got from that album that may just indicate they are going to do something like primus and do something completely different who knows it can happen and it may be the best thing they do maybe the worst thing they do but this is something you got to be careful with with doing that. You have an established name as small as STP is within the steampunk community or as drastic as doing something like the White Album for the Beatles where you have millions of fans. You got to be careful with that kind of a turnover with doing something so completely different. Well, the... because you feel it will damage your name, you mean. Not just damage the name, but alienate fans. Yeah, but I mean, that's capable of being done by anyway, which, you know... Are that's the thing. Fans are really fickle. Really, really fickle. That, um, that the, We try to be objective here, but even then, we can be really fickle, as I think we just proved today in several instances. It's 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 impossible um, to, to appease everyone. So, yeah. of course, any little change that you do, whether it's a 
uh, swapping out a member or whether it's just throwing in a song that you thought was good, but, you know, apparently it was risky. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think fan appeasement is a completely separate topic that could go much, much longer because, I mean, one of the reasons Linkin Park keeps evolving and changing and removing stuff and adding stuff is to try and find the next big thing to appease their fans because they got bored with the bass baseline and and there's a lot to be discussed there especially with how fickle the internet is as far as fans go and how you can express how you want with anonymity Um, i i I propose that the game of of telephone be replaced by a game of internet i i agree i like that um it works differently though because of course the words are there you can see them and yet it still happens how the hell is that (laughs) well mostly because you're getting into a variety of different languages in this case people around the world and there is no uniform no no there's no uniform leet speak to be spoken to we're gonna ignore so john the answer is people are idiots yes not what yeah that's mostly spelling even though there's spell check and the little red line means you got it wrong so have we appeased your query, John? Do you? Well, feel actually, no, I'm actually on. No, no. Well, I'm on one Did... other thing right now. Uh, that and that, of course, is is the 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 final edge of that spectrum. The, of course, Steam Power Draft is starting to walk down it, but of course, they haven't fundamentally changed yet. Yeah. I I do want to talk about cases where your band has fundamentally changed. That after so many uh, swapouts of of artists, and this is the question we were asking today: What the hell are you? Well, okay, good example of that. I don't think Queen, as they're touring now, should be called Queen. There's no Freddie Mercury. He was one of the defining members of that band. Ah, see, that's the thing. That's subjective. But, of course, most people will agree that Freddie Mercury is the defining member of the band. Most people do. I can confidently say the word most. But it's still a subjective thing. There's still other elements to Queen that made Queen Queen. And if the ones that are there now are any of them the same? Yeah, most of them. Most of them. That's the thing. for the people that were into those particular aspects of Queen, then that would be strong enough. I just don't know anyone who's into those aspects of Queen. Uh, that's a shame, though, because of course you know that, well, that the music is... wasn't wasn't of wholly course. made by no, of Freddie course. Murphy. And Brian and May is an amazing great, guitarist. Yeah. They all they all operated in tandem, and it was it was a a, a unified work. If you get every member, of I'm the... just playing devil's advocate. For, yeah. No, I yeah. agree with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Freddie no, Mercury is yes. the guy. Uh, he's a god among mortals, but. Same case. I mean, you couldn't have, you couldn't have, the Doors without Jim Morrison. Sublime without um, Brad, whatever his name is, I'm blanking on now. But um, you know, the now, but Sublime is touring as Sublime with Rome, who's their new singer. And it's not Sublime. But they're not saying it is. They're saying the band is Sublime, but the singer is someone else. And that's that's that's. Although Probably. then again, for me, the Bad Fish, the local New York Bad Fish, the local New York Sublime cover band, is a better Sublime band than Sublime is now. Well, wait a minute, minute, wait a minute. There's a Sublime cover band. Yeah, I would not have put them Bad in fish. the cover band territory. Yeah, I just got a text today from my friend Steph up in Boston, who told me that uh, that it was twelve dollars for a the best Huey Lewis Boston-based cover band. And she asked me if she thought $12 was worth it. Well, it's Huey Lewis. Oh, wait, it, whether it was worth $12. <laughs> it was It was Huey Lewis, so that's... I don't know. I saw the best rap show ever for 12 bucks, so, you know. Who's that? Well, best Boston-based <laughs> Huey Lewis. They're not, they did not even have the confidence to say, like, Massachusetts. <laughs> okay, well, one band that... 
Well, you know what? When Neil Young left Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, they did change their names because their name is their names. Um, but when they did that split, speaking to what you're talking about, their music, both Neil Young's music and Crosby, Stills, Nash's music, significantly changed. Hmm. You could definitely see how losing that one member com- completely changed the dynamic in a lot of their styles and a lot of what they did. But see, here's the thing. You keep the name, and then you actually get to see the maturing. Regardless of whether you see it as maturing or not, I assume based on how you're telling me this, you see it as maturing? Uh, I think their best stuff was when they were all together. Ah, uh, interesting. And that's that's just... Well, yeah, I mean, well, for many people, though, and of course Floyd uh, applies here also, we look through Pink Floyd and you see a lot of mature... I'm not into early Floyd particularly, but I think they developed and they hit their peak, and then of course there was always a downslide. I'm not into the 94 album Division Bell, that was kind of... Eh. But yeah. Yeah, there was a, you get to see the arc of a single name, whereas all of a sudden you remove the name and you replaced it with something else... And it's just odd then. Then you have to wonder, well, of course, that's a signified shift. But to actually put a personality to the name, that's kind of cool. A personality to the music itself, that's kind of cool. Well, it's better from a from an archiving perspective, I think, for future generations. Well, look at the, ar- the name. Well, speaking of an archiving perspective and polar opposites, I mean, look at David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar. When you talk to a Van Halen fan, you can't like both. I'm an oddity. I actually like both of them. Most people are very definitively Hagar or Lee Roth. Mm. Yeah. And me, I like both. But yeah, I lean not, more towards the same Hagar. band. They're, and they're Even not. They're Many the people are, are so Lennon different. versus McCartney. Yeah. I think they were at their best both. Well, I'm more of a Harrison than either of those two. Who am I kidding? I'm a Ringo at my heart. Yeah, I'm a Harrison. Ex- I've always been a George Harrison fan. <laughs> that explains a lot. What, that I'm a George Harrison fan? No, that, oh, he's, that he's a Ringo, Ringo fan. Let's make fun of my Ringo joke. You're Ringo I'm star, sorry, all-star Ringo. band. I'm sorry I made it a joke. You're not that sorry. Sorry, has, not sorry. He has every Aww. single Ringo star solo song ever. Okay. Um, I want to take this opportunity to say that this was actually quite interesting, considering... I totally nerd-raged about yeah. Les Claypool right before we went on air because well, I could Claypool's, not figure out what to call it. That's him. what I kind of want to leave this on because Les Claypool, I think, is the perfect example as to the, the tail end of this. Well, we started there and we end there is that he's the artistic decision. Every single artistic choice that is different, then it changes. It, right, well, and he also changes. shows how unimportant a name is. His name matters. The band's name matters less well no well, here's the thing not, his name th- doesn't even matter because he's willing to say i'm primus now i'm Hold including everybody else that you take the interpretation though that this is that this is based on cockiness which it very well could be but at the same point it could also be a matter of altruism and to say well i'm with a new person now I'm i would like us to that. have an identity well i think distinct that, well i think that kind of comes down to only he knows <laughs> Because it kind of looks both ways. And I kind of don't want to look in his yeah. mind, because that's some scary, scary finger work, and I don't know how you come up with that. I thought you were going to say scary, scary stuff. It's a scary, scary world full of scary, scary and things. And speaking of scary, scary worlds, I'm sure Steve has a spam for us by one of the creeps on the internet. Creeps, Or the, huh? the, the bots creeps? designed by these creeps. Are, these are generous people offering uh, right, their own personal... in Their, their informations... As, as so many say, that say plural information. Yeah. They are giving us their sharing of webs, of interwebs. Yes, they're they two share cents, the webs with us. 
Would you like to hear this, Ben? Yeah, that would be nice. Said Span, said. Prizjazin tu nitilko Ruspanyali presents Lex Taxa Usta Vishna is Sistematijna Praka. Isacarius. You and me friends? Wait, what? Um, who is that by? What, what language is this in? Um, I'm going to guess that it's because it's by xmc.pl that it is Polish. Because I know the internets. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm looking at these words, and there's... I really many... apologize, Polish listeners, if I have b- befouled your language. The phonetic... I, th- I feel like I might have got some words right, though, because I know, I know my wrong. Polish suffixes. Because there's, like, the, there's too many words starting with three consonants in a row. That's Polish for you, That's though. That's not S-T-R. The fact said, that is an said, easy one. Said friend Steph, by last name of Moksiski. Ooh, I said her full name. They'll come after her. Anyway, there is an S-Z-Y... Uh, thrown together. That's just a typical Polish thing. And so, of course, you usually get... No, it's uh, M-O-K-S-Z-Y-C-K-I. It actually looks like Moksiki. Anyone remaining, re- uh, reading it phonetically will always say Moksiki. But it is Moksiski. I liked last... I liked two weeks ago's emails better. Because you just went, Meow! A lot. Well, you're a simpleton. And you like shit like that. <laughs> I'm more easily amused, don't hate me. <laughs> wow, that was the biggest burn I think we've had on air. <clears throat> I saw. And my voice is going. So on that note, Steve, please tell us what we're doing next week. Next week, the album that I I I shunned John <laughs> when he, he made offered me to not do, it. do because, because I have like, literally no. planned this album for for weeks and weeks on end. In fact, even before I think she was even writing an album, I was checking uh I was checking this artist consistently to see when the next one was coming out. The artist is Saint Vincent, and uh, this will be uh, her first. Uh, self-titled release, St. Vincent. I believe in total it's maybe the third or fourth release. I'm not entirely sure. But this is based on the work, the reason I say she, for a saint, is that it's Annie Clark. Annie Clark is the composer, formerly associated with Sufjan Stevens when he had his whole harem of of people surrounding him to make his giant productions that he did back in the mid-2000s. And these people went off to have very illustrious careers, and one of them was Annie Clark. Lots of work with David Byrne, and now she's doing her own thing. And it's actually funny that you bring up St. Vincent, because I saw the name the other day, because I listen to the Nerds podcast pretty regularly, and she was actually, well, St. Vincent, so I guess just her, was a guest on the Nerds podcast very recently. So I'm, I'm interested to go listen to that after I've listened to the album. Get a little insight to her specifically. I'm also nice. interested for you to hear a uh, composition of hers uh, called Proven Badlands that she wrote for a small ensemble called Y Music. I'll have to look into that. that that's Y or Y? Y. There's a Y there. Letter. Well, okay. Same word as music, though. Y Music. Make sure you enjoy your St. Patty's Day. We'll be back with St. Vincent's. And, um, nice little connection yeah, there. I, I like doing that. It's loose, but it works. I made a pun without even it's, trying. It's a this shit up. Is it a pun? It's a coincidence. And on that it's note, shit up. music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. good.